All right, everybody. Hello and welcome back. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your science fiction monks, speculative fiction book club podcast by Click Temple Media. This episode is the second in our series on Isaac Asimov's wildly influential masterpiece novel, Foundation, which was published in 1951. And this bonus series is brought to you by one of our very generous Patreon supporters who commissioned them. Very grateful for that. And this feels like the perfect time, really, to be revisiting this book. And I'm, I'm really glad to have the impetus to do that. And like last time, as we will be for this entire series, I am joined by my lifelong friend, Jay Deal. Jay is a historian of medieval monasticism at Long Island University, which is 100% going to matter today. Jay, welcome back to the show. Happy to be back. Well, this episode, we are talking about part two, which is called The Encyclopedists. Uh, this was the first part of Foundation that Asimov actually wrote, even though it's part two here in the novel. It was published in Astounding Magazine as a standalone story in 1942, where it was in fact called Foundation, uh, though he also sold the next story to that same magazine only a few months later. But we are taking the text, of course, right from the, the novel version of the story. And Jay is going to give us a synopsis of part two right now, and then we'll uh, get into our discussion. All right. So part two, the encyclopedist, it picks up 50 years after the end of part one and drops us onto the now populated world of Terminus and the Foundation, which is the site of Harry Seldon's project to save the galaxy from millennia of barbarism. This project is the Encyclopedia Galactica. Running this project in the Foundation is a guy named Louis Perrin, a name with significance we'll discuss, <laughs> while the supporting civilian government is run by Mayor Sal. Harden. Now, beyond Terminus, the Empire has begun to crumble, it seems. And for our inhabitants, the most notable sign of this is the fact that the governor of the nearby prefect or the imperial prefect of Anacreon has assumed the title of king, which sort of shifts the dynamics of power around Terminus. Now, Perrin, the head of the foundation, seems completely oblivious to the realities of the situation and clings over and over again to the idea that Terminus is under the direct protection of the emperor and that their role as indifferent scientists working on the encyclopedia means they don't need to be concerned with any of this. Hardin, the mayor, has a much more realistic understanding of the situation. We have an envoy, an envoy from Anacreon meets with Hardin and Peren and proposes to set up a military base on Terminus, and ostensibly this is for Terminus's own protection, of course. But he also, in the course of his conversation, lets slip that Anacreon, unlike Terminus, no longer has access to nuclear power, and Hardin seems to jump on this idea for reasons we'll discover. The board of the foundation, the board of trustees who runs the foundation with Perrin at its head, meanwhile, secures a visit from an imperial chancellor, Lord Dorwin, while also noting that as the 50th anniversary of the establishment of foundation is approaching, Harry Seldon's vault is going to open to unknown purposes shortly. Lord Dorwin, who turns out to be a bookish enthusiast of archaeology, unintentionally reveals that technological know-how in the empire is dwindling and confirms that the center of the empire now regards the periphery as little more than barbarous backwaters unworthy of their concern. With Anacreon po 
poised to establish its military base, which it sees as the first step towards annexing Terminus, the vault of Harry Selden finally opens, and Selden himself, in holographic form, reveals that, shockingly, the Encyclopedia Project was fraudulent all along, merely a ruse to secure a charter of protection from the Empire, while the current crisis that Terminus must confront is itself the first of a series of planned steps by which Terminus will birth a new galactic renaissance. As the message concludes, we learn that Salvor Hardin has just orchestrated an effective coup, seizing control of Terminus from the Foundation's board and with a plan for dealing with Anacreon's imminent arrival, which sets the stage for part three. I don't think that this story focuses enough on the emotional response that the encyclopedia people have to this <laughs> this knowledge. I mean, we've all maybe it's taken true. I think we've all taken jobs before that have turned out to not be quite what we thought they were going to be, but this is a pretty big deal. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the realization that their life's work uh, simply has been rendered irrelevant at this point, although Selden does toss them a little bone and says like, yeah, we had to maintain this illusion all along uh, for the good of the broader project, but also sort of says without any sugarcoating on it. Um, yeah, this was really worth nothing. We don't care actually whether a single volume of the encyclopedia <laughs> is ever published or not. Yeah. And mean, meanwhile, for 50 years, for five decades, people have been like putting in overtime and really stressing yeah, about this exactly. thing. Whole lives, right? The ulcers and the whole the whole deal. And while assuming that they're, you know, their purpose is the higher purpose, while guys like the mayor are are merely peripheral in some ways. And indeed, by the end of the story, the 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 tables have turned and it turns out guys like Salvador Hardin are the instrumental figures in Selden's long-term plan, and the encyclopedists are blasé, are insignificant in some ways. Right. We're gonna we're gonna take this up uh, when we get a little bit deeper into our discussion, but we'll we'll keep in mind as we we go through that uh, you know this is written by Asimov. Well, well, I mean, you know, originally anyway, written by Asimov at a time when he had just completed his master's degree and had to put pursuing his PhD on hold because of the Second World War, where you know he had to go be you know a, a hardened type of figure, I suppose, rather than one of these academics. But then, of course, after the war, he does go and finish his PhD and becomes a, a tenured professor for a little while before, you know, making it big as a, as a science fiction writer, which, you know, that's everybody's dream, I guess. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So we'll be interrogating his his views on academics versus politicians uh, a, a little bit later. But let's uh, let's start our discussion by checking in on where we are in the fall of Rome comparison that we we spent nigh on, I don't know, seven or eight hours talking about in the last episode, uh, but yet somehow are still not done with because we are still in the process. In fact, we're at the beginning of the process of that happening right now. The empire is just now, 50 years after part one, starting to break up, start, starting to disintegrate. And so I think it'll be worthwhile for us to see where that matches up, where that lines up with what actually happens with the real Western Roman Empire in our real world. And what this really looks like is the fifth century, uh, when regions of the Western Roman Empire are becoming independent, where we go from being one 
state that uh, controls uh, land and, and people from Syria to Scotland and from Morocco to the Crimean Peninsula, that now in Western Europe and the Western Mediterranean, we've now got a patchwork of many different states, especially in Gaul. There are a lot of very small states. Uh, by the time we get to the year 500, actually, though the empire is is gone, the imperial government is gone, there are far fewer of these of these states, and there are, there are only a handful of them as they've uh, consolidated. And that type of breakup is obviously what we're looking at here in this part of Foundation, where we're, we're on the periphery. We're out in what would amount to be the, the provinces, and we are seeing actually that breakup happening. So I think it's worth looking at how this actually happens, how these, these new states that emerged out of the Western Roman Empire, how they were created, uh, and to see where that matches up with what Asimov is up to here. And really, there were four ways. I mean, this is a bit simplistic, but I, I'm going to say that there are four ways that these new states were created. One of those is that local or regional office holders Right, people who uh, are part of the imperial government, part of the Roman imperial bureaucracy, simply begin operating independently. Uh, they aren't getting any more help from the central government. They think the central government maybe doesn't know what's the best course of action here, so they ignore orders. They do their own thing. They stop sending taxes because they need that money for something to spend locally or regionally. Uh, so that's one of the ways that these new states come about. Uh, another way, is, and this is, I think, quite an interesting way that my, my students tend to not know anything about. This is something they've not generally heard of. But one of the other ways is that the imperial government would place a a military unit, you know, an army essentially, in charge of a, a region really somewhere in kind of the middle of the empire, and it really giving this military unit civil power over a region. And the the real exemplar of this is the Visigothic Kingdom of Toulouse that's founded in either 418 or 419 yeah, dates. Figuring out when things actually happen uh, in the fifth century can be extremely difficult. Uh, when there's this military unit uh, that does have a barbarian name on it, we can talk more about that later. But it is a Roman military unit that is given the authority over uh, the area of Toulouse that then goes on to become what we call the, the Visigothic kingdom. Uh, another method, the third method, is simply outright conquest by outsiders. Uh, there's really only one big example of this, and that is the Vandal conquest of North Africa. Uh, Vandals are the uh, name of a, a barbarian group that comes from Central Europe and makes their way through Gaul, through Spain, where they hang out for about a decade, and then into North Africa, which they conquer and then rule as, a, as an independent kingdom for nearly a century. But the real answer here is, and how this happens is actually D, all of the above. Uh, and yeah. it is literally D, right? Is it really some combination? There, there's not really any state that has only one of these things going on. Yeah. Uh, for example, even though the Vandals do really conquer North Africa, they do also end up making a treaty with the imperial government that gives them some very important legitimacy and gives them some territory that they hadn't actually conquered yet uh, and prevents prevents further war. Uh, local or regional office holders who really just need to take matters into their own hands often end up making some kind of arrangement with whatever military unit they can find nearby. And uh, almost always that military, in fact, definitely always that military person, the, the, the general in charge of the army ends up 
becoming in charge in some way. And then all of these new states start competing with each other for resources, for territory. Uh, Some of it is actually just competition and prestige and ambition, but some of it really is about wanting to protect the people that you're trying to protect, your own people or people you've made an agreement with uh, from from others. And um, so all three of these end up getting kind of mixed together. And and which of them is really kind of the dominant form in a particular kingdom, just varies from kingdom to kingdom. Yeah, I mean, I think that the uh, the Visigoths is, you know, kind of the archetypal example for thinking about the mixture of all these ways. Um, you know, I, I often teach to my student as the Visigothic kingdom um, is effectively the first of the successor states. But I think it's also, you know, never been as straightforward as that. The Visigoths, the, the people we wind up calling the Visigoths, have a long history well before 418 of their presence within the empire and of having various complicated relationships with the empire itself. And if you look at their full history, you get exactly the sense of this, that they are occasionally enemies of the Roman. Roman Empire, occasionally allies of the Roman Empire, and eventually independent of the Roman Empire, and yet still existing in a world where they have inherited um, so much of the Roman Empire. And I think that thinking, for instance, of you know the way in which Anacreon emerges as kind of parallel to the Visigothic example can be really useful. There's this delightful moment in Foundation where Hardin presents the Board of Trustees with an analysis of the treaty that's been just been signed between mm-hmm. the empire and the kingdom of Anacreon. And although apparently it's dressed up in all sorts of language to make it seem like Anacreon is still part of some empire and stuff like this. In fact, when you boil it down, it basically says Anacreon owes no obligations whatsoever to the empire. The empire has no control over Anacreon whatsoever. And so the, this anal- this moment of analysis in the text really reflects the complexity of the situation whereby ideationally Anacreon is still a prefect of the empire, but practically speaking, it has ceased to be in any real way part of the empire. Right. And that does map on exactly to what is going on in, in the fifth and into the sixth century exactly. in, in Western yeah. Europe, where these these various kings, uh, that it's actually kind of complicated to even say king, I suppose, but we'll yeah, just say we'll say king here, uh, some of whom were Roman imperial officials, civic officials, though most of them, uh, you know, certainly by the time we get to the late fifth century, they're all really these, these generals who have some kind of barbarian identity, though most of them are at least as fluent in Latin and, uh, and, and would really identify as Romans as much as, uh, as barbarians, all of which is extraordinarily complicated, the question of identity and ethnic identity during this period period. But most of them still, though, have some kind of formal relationship with the empire, which still exists headquartered in Constantinople. And to varying degrees, it's really important for these military rulers who are operating as kings to continue to be seen as the agents of the emperor in Constantinople. So, uh, great example, really, you know, my favorite example are the Burgundians. These are my people I've yeah, been, you know, I don't know, studying right. since yeah. I was in diapers, basically. Uh, but Gundabad, who reigns from the, you know, the 470s until his death in the five teens. Uh, this is a, a kingdom, a state that is is headquartered in Lyon. This is 
southeastern. Uh, this is this is southeastern France today. Lyon, beautiful place. Uh, this is where they're they're headquartered. Also parts of Switzerland, I should say as well. Uh, it's really important to him and to his sons that they are formally given military titles. That although they are kings of of their people, uh, they, the king of their army, they also receive a formal title from the emperor that gives them some bit of uh, not real authority because the fact that they command big people who have big weapons is really the source of their power and like real authority, but it gives them legitimacy that they have a military title, that they continue to hold a rank in the Roman army. They continue to yeah. wear a Roman military uniform and, and to wear medals that they get from the emperor, like sends them medals every few years. One of the reasons this is such an amazing example, the, the, the Burgundian kingdom, is that it is one of the few places in the 5th century, or really, I guess in this case, it's the first decade of the 6th century, to be clear, where we've got the correspondence actually between one of these barbarian kings and the Roman emperor in Constantinople. We have these letters that have survived that were written by uh, the Bishop of Vienne in his capacity as like the head advisor uh, to uh, to the King Gundabad and his son Sigismund, who um, becomes king actually while Gundabad is still alive uh, as well. And we've got this correspondence and it reads an awful lot actually like what Asimov has here, this kind of language yeah. between the, the prefect of Anacreon and the emperor where it's all very flowery and and obsequious and, and in fact being kind of subservient to the emperor but really actually you're de facto in charge and the emperor can't do anything about it but it's nice for you to get the trinkets for your legitimacy and it makes the emperor feel good too it's always been a useful way for me to boil this down to my students um, which is this well-known line from a, a famous work of medieval history and the line go i can't remember the exact words but the line goes something like this power is a fact authority is a construct. And the idea here being that, yeah, if these kings or whatever they are, the kings of Burgundy have de facto power on account of their military commands and everything else, why is it they need all these titles and medals and things like this from the empire? And it's because authority isn't quite the same thing as power. Authority is the ways in which you legitimize power, in which you construct your rationale for having power, and also gives you the kind of ideas as to how you can exercise power and stuff. And the fact that all of these kings who are in charge of their territories want all these Roman titles is a sign that somehow a type of authority grounded in the idea of the Roman Empire is still extremely useful to them, is still a way in which they can uh, in which they can rally people to their cause, in which they can get people to be deferential to them, um, in which they can still sort of exercise power successfully. I think a good real world and, and recent and, and in fact, in some cases, contemporary example or analogy for for this is dictatorships that hold elections. Where yeah, the that's the exactly right. Right, where the conclusion is foregone. We know who's going to win the election, yet we have them anyway. It's a total fiction, but yet the the dictators feel like this gives them some some bit of legitimacy. And some of that legitimacy is really just about operating on the global stage, but some of it is also still about propaganda at home. And 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 both of those are factors here for these barbarian kings, yeah. these new rulers of these new states wanting to have these uh, these trinkets, wanting to have these these tokens from the emperor for them to interact with the the local and and regional uh indigenous 
elite who are wealthy landowners, who are, are people that they actually need in order to, to govern here. One of the reasons, though, of course, right, that this is important is that in all of these cases, by the time we get to the year 500, Everyone who is in charge of a state that is a new state in territory that, you know, a century previously was the Western Roman Empire is an outsider, is not someone who uh, was the civil official of that territory and simply took charge when the empire was disintegrating. It is someone who had a different position and began exercising more and different authority than they actually had from the Roman emperor, though most of them had some kind of authority from the Roman emperor already. And so legally for them, it is also important that the emperor continue to give them this title that means you're not just the general, you're also the civil official in charge. So it's not just that you command the army, you also uh, can write laws and judge cases and so on. And that's really important for them. But that does not seem to matter for the prefect of Anacreon here in Foundation, right? Because that person is, yeah, that person is the person who's in charge. So I actually wonder why then does the prefect sort of like throw off his cloak of being the prefect and say, I am now a king instead of just acting like a king, like just ignore the emperor and just be in charge. Yeah, which in fact, in some ways would be, I, I think, would hew a little closer to, to sort of the history of the Western Roman Empire yeah. in, in some ways, um, rather than just a prefect suddenly declaring himself a king or something like that. But I do think that in terms of Asimov's story, um, it, it allows the storytelling to capture a bigger point in a simple concept in some ways. Um, The idea here being that somehow these territories that formerly had been part of the galactic empire um, are now achieving a certain level of independence that is going to be um, both practical, but also have some kind of difficult legal backing behind it. That's the point of this treaty. And somehow, I think for Asimov, um, having these prefects rename themselves as kings hammers home his idea of the empire crumbling from within or something like that, right? Because we, we talked about this in our last section. He really doesn't want there to be outsiders right. coming in and destroying the empire. He wants a story of an empire crumbling under its own weight and under its own incompetence. And therefore, it needs to be an internal process. And so he has to have a story whereby these prefix formerly citizens and civil officials of the galactic empire decide to break away from the empire, that it's useful to break away for them or something like that. And, you know, so there's sort of, I think, two ways to answer this question. We could speculate about why a figure in the prefect of Anacreon's um, position would want to do this. But I do think it's important just to recognize how, how this, this change of title in some ways is serving Asimov's storytelling purposes, um, that it that it allows him to take a very small thing and and explode it as kind of a metaphor for a larger process that is happening. Absolutely. And it would be real clunky for Asimov every time he introduces or, or you know, invokes this person, invokes the prefect, uh, as to explain, you know, he's still using the title <laughs> prefect, but actually is like the sole rule. You know, that would be yeah. clunky. And if there's one thing this book doesn't need more of, it's more exposition. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Exactly. Exactly. But I think, you know, in universe, though, too, of course, we could think of cultural yeah. reasons why this would why this would really matter. 
and maybe even legally, right? I mean, if you know, if yeah. he's the prefect rather than the you know the monarch, the the sole ruler of this territory, there might actually be limitations on what type of power a prefect has. Possibly, prefect is only a civil authority yeah. and, and means that you don't ah. actually get to command military forces. So you, mm, you if you're going to take over that control as well, which clearly has happened here, then you've got to be able to 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 lay claim to that somehow, or vice versa. Prefect perhaps is a military position here who now. Now is much like uh, Gundabad, uh, much like uh, barbarian yeah. kings like Clovis and and so on, uh, are wanting now also to exercise this civil authority. Have to have a, a, a new title or something that allows them to do that. And of course, yeah. you know, that's what this treaty really is is conferring. It's really um, and actually, I should say that there, there's a term for this. It's it's not a, a, a term from the fifth century. It's a, an anachronistic term, but a great term that we use in thinking about the fifth century to refer to these new states that we often call the barbarian kingdoms, to call them kingdoms of the empire, uh, yeah. to, to, to talk about the relationship between these kingdoms and the empire. And I, yeah, I think Asimov has done actually a nice job of, of, of showing us that in a shorthand here. I think also part of the idea of, of transforming it into a kingdom um, is also to give the sense that it, that some new type of community has emerged here, right? If it's just an autonomous prefect or something like that, then all the people living on Anacreon still think of themselves as imperial citizens. Um, they all sort of still think of themselves as part of the empire. So when this guy sort of declares, we now have the kingdom of Anacreon and I'm the king of Anacreon, it forces a kind of reconceptualization of the community itself, right? These are no longer citizens of the prefect of Anacreon. These now are subjects of the king of Anacreon. And I think in some ways this can be a, a useful way to hammer home the idea at this point that the 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 entity that is Anacreon, the state that is this planet of Anacreon, um, is now a fundamentally different type of political community. Belonging to it means something different now. Right. And and although that does not really happen in the fifth century and doesn't happen over the no. span of 50 years, I mean, that is ultimately what happens in the early Middle Ages. We don't call France Gaul anymore. We call it France after the exactly. Franks who who began this new state in the fifth century in, in Gaul uh, and in yeah. fact had some of these imperial trinkets as well, was a general yeah. in the Roman army and and yeah. so on. I mean, Clovis had himself given the title of consul of Rome, right? If I, the, the king of the Franks at some point, if I recall. Right. That's the, the historian Gregory of Tours writing quite, quite a while, uh, decades after this, uh, calls it that. This is actually one of these sort of like burning issues in that's the study right. of, yeah. of these new states is what exactly Gregory of Tours uh, meant when he shows us this, uh, this victory parade uh, that, he, yeah. that, that Clovis has. Whatever technically and legally is going on there in terms of like what title he's got and so on, uh, it is clear that the emperor in Constantinople has sent Clovis some stuff to say, good job yeah. on your victory over the visit. Goths, who also were some people I was giving stuff to, but I'm, yeah, now, right. now I'm favoring you, you know, because you won. But let's pretend yeah. that you won because I was favoring you. We'll we'll, we'll flip yep. the order there. Going back to that point a moment ago, the the sort of this doesn't happen in 50 years. Just to you know, echo a point we made in the last unit that one of the interest, the last. Uh, 
uh, episode. One of the interesting things about Asimov's story here is is how much it's rooted in the history of the end of the Western Roman Empire, but how much it compresses the timeline in some ways. Um, that things move very fast, like, right? That this this millennia old galactic empire, whose size is incomprehensible to us, somehow time moves. Events happen very quickly in this giant empire that's lasted for millennia during the period of the story we're telling right now. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about that is that he essentially magnifies, you know, by twelve the the longevity of the Roman Empire, but then speeds yeah. up all of these processes, uh, which you don't need to do if you've made it longer. But but uh, yeah. you know that's all right. It's uh, it's fun and it gives us these nice increments and it it allows him to keep keep checking in and keep checking in. I mean, not even just within this novel, but within the you know the sequels to this novel as well. Well, let's uh, let's move into checking in on the Encyclopedia Project here, and and we're going to talk about the Encyclopedia Project as it intersects with medieval monasticism. But I just want to talk about what the project is as we see it here in the novel before uh, we let Jay talk about his uh, his research and and his his first love, I suppose, uh, for a little while. So. At the start of the foundation, uh, 50 years ago, there were 100,000 people uh, involved in this project who all go to Terminus to, to begin it. Now, 50 years later, at, at this point, there are 150,000 people, so 50,000 more people who are engaged in the project. The total population on Terminus now is 1 million people, which is some real serious population growth over yeah. 50 years ago. I, I wonder In order about of magnitude. That. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't. I mean, that's a lot of babies. I, I don't quite yeah. know how that has happened. But yeah. we'll, that's we'll, not an empire in decline. <laughs> no, it is not. But in fact, we should address that later when we start talking about you know why this is why this is happening. So the the foundation is managed by a board of trustees. They're all scholars from the the project. There's a, a department of logic. That's the only department that is mentioned. But members of the board, they're actually labeled. It's not as scholars. They're really labeled as physical scientist and Hardin actually trained as a psychologist at the at the foundation before going into politics. So it seems like maybe the foundation is a little bit organized, something akin to a university that we would recognize. I mean, we don't have logic departments, but, you know, seem to be departments based on scholarly academic discipline in, in some sense. And then there's the Encyclopedia Building, uh, which is described as having vast storehouses of reference films and numerous projection rooms. Much of the foundation building actually seems to be underground. Uh, during the uh, the envoy from uh, Anacreon, during his visit, they go, and I'm going to quote here, they go down level by level into and through the composing departments, editing departments, publishing departments, and filming departments. And so yeah, there's a lot of people at work on the, the sort of tangible object of the encyclopedia volumes that they're working on. Uh, they also then show the envoy who comes from the imperial government. They show him a film of the second volume. And, and here's a question I have about this, Jay, that somehow, you know, the number of times I have read this book, I kind of have overlooked, but are they, are they only making films? Yeah, it's a good question. It kind of seems like it, right? It does. Um, that everything is going to be preserved as 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 audiovisual 
uh, evidence that the encyclopedia is an AV project, right? Not a text project. Um, yeah, it kind of seems that way. I agree. And that's real weird because that's not very useful. Super weird. Not no. useful, right? And, you know, and of course, it turns out it doesn't have to be useful because it's all a, all a fraud. But, yeah, you know, if you're right. wanting people to think it's going to be useful, I, you know, I think you want some actual text, some written word. And so here I actually wondered, there, there, there clearly seems to be some sort of audiovisual thing going on here. But I also actually wondered, are we are we actually more talking about microfilm? Yeah, something like the some kind of permanent durable recording or something like that seems to be the idea here. There's no sense. There's no sense, at least, that anything is really being digitally stored at this point, right? There's talks about um, recordings and rolls and things like this. Yeah, it seems to be something like microfilm that they've got going on. I agree. Yeah, that that is what I think is going on. And we did talk last time in our History of the Future segment that there is no digital anything in this world. Asimov (laughs) just couldn't have envisioned that. But microfilm is actually pretty new when Asimov is writing this story, especially for thinking about him writing this story in the 40s rather than when he's putting this together as a novel in 1951. This microfilm, I mean, the technology for it is really, you know, kind of from the 19th century, I suppose, but it's not really until the 1920s that this wider application of it, the sort of ease of making it uh, exists. And the idea that, hey, you can have whole libraries that are microfilm, where you're taking images of books, storing them on film, which is going to be more durable than anything that a book is made out of, and also take up less space. And you can actually even do a kind of print on demand thing with them. That's something that really gets started in the 1920s in France, but then really in America, not until the 30s and the 40s. It's like the late 30s, I guess, when Harvard starts doing this with their library. And so, you know, for Asimov, who's in school at that point, right? This is the new, hot new technology, presumably that's, you know, happening at the the Columbia Library while he's there. And so I think that must be what he has in mind here, that this actually is like the sci-fi future. Yeah, I, I, um, a massive where everything is is consigned to microfilms and stuff like that. Yeah, I think this is kind of his vision in a lot of ways. It's deeply ironic because, of course, like any technology like this that we assume will be the permanent way to store data, um, you know, the, the endless future. Um, now microfilms are rarely used and the big, the big project is to create electronic eBooks of everything, um, and digitized versions of everything. Yeah. So, you know, as with any kind of technology for preserving knowledge at some point, it's sort of Mm, transformed at some point the technology becomes passe becomes obsolete and you have to move on to the next thing. Interestingly, though, right, and you and I have used some microfilm. We certainly had this, you know, as, yeah. as children in our library, but then also as as researchers, you more than me, you've done more archival work than I have. But microfilm or, or microfiche, these are, are really kind of referring to the same type of thing. It's just a matter of is it a roll or is it flat? Uh, but they're still in use in, in archives, often actually done here yeah. in the 20s, 30s and 40s. But my understanding is that you know, even if we don't use those as a matter of course anymore, but that the the films and the fiches actually still exist somewhere, that a thousand years from now, we could open those up and use them. But that's not going to be true with a PDF. Yeah, no, that's true. Absolutely. You know, th- this is a bit of an aside, but I, I have an interesting example of this right now of this happening uh, of sort of the durability and not durability of certain types of media, which is a website that was created by the medievalist Pat Geary um, with UCLA called the the St. Gall Project. 
um, which took uh, a, an artifact having to do with medieval monasticism, this drawing of a monastery, and created an amazing uh, digital reference tool for it that allow you to zoom in that had little translations of all the text and stuff like this. It's an absolutely amazing project. And it was built almost entirely using Flash, yeah. using Adobe <laughs> Flash. And as a result, you know, uh, literally 19 days ago, the website became obsolete. It became unusable when Flash was when support for Flash on all web browsers was phased out. Um, and so this is the kind of thing this is the kind of thing you risk with digital technology if you don't migrate your data, basically, that you avoid with things like microfilm. Right. And, and, and avoid with books as well. Right. You just, you just, books. you just have ink on even paper better. and you open it up even better. But yeah, with microfilm, even if you don't have a dedicated, specific purpose built microfilm reader, you can make one. If you've got a light and a magnifying Correct. glass, like, you know, a thousand years in the future, presumably they still will have lights and magnifying glasses. And you've yeah. just got this film. You can find a way to read that. Right. But with yeah. digital technology, you have to have a computer. You have to have an operating system that can read that language. So, you know, if you are an institution, or, you know, just a just a person who wants to really massively be prepared, who are looking to store data, store documents for, you know, the, the long term, a thousand years into the future or 12,000 or, or 30,000 as this dark age is supposed to last. Yeah. Microfilm is going to be better than digital and it's going to be better than better than books. So even though Asimov was not saying this is better than digital here because he didn't know about digital, he's still kind of right. He stumbled onto something. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that was something that really just jumped out to me here about, about what these guys uh, at the Encyclopedia Project, at the foundation, are up to. But really, we want to talk about the Encyclopedia Foundation as a monastery. So before we get to that, let's talk about medieval monasticism. And, and maybe, Jay, you could just start by talking about your scholarly work. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, monasticism is is my uh, is my research specialty. Monks are my monks are my guys that I spend most of my time working with, um, and and more specifically, I work generally on the kind of intellectual life and intellectual culture that we find within medieval monasteries, particularly in the 12th century. And even more specifically than that, and apropos of our conversation right now, I work on monastic manuscripts, that is to say, on the books that are copied and read within medieval monasteries. And so I'm very interested in sort of um, how different types of media are used in monastic learning. I'm very interested in trying to figure out the role of the written word within monastic culture and stuff like this. Um, and I'm interested in just generally speaking, monasteries as cultural institutions, um, the kind of cultural practices that you find within them, how they compare or don't compare with the rest of medieval cultural life and stuff like that. Um, and, and so the, you know, the foundation is something that that resonates with me in this sense that it is putatively an intellectual institution that looks a little like a medieval monastery. Well, let's back it up a little bit first then, Jay, and, and let's just talk maybe about like what what are monasteries who are monks? Good. I mean, it's a difficult question and, and we'll, we'll, we'll answer in, in, in some different ways here. Um, 
So monastery, this is the term we usually use for a community of monks, um, what we refer to as cenobitic monasticism or communal monasticism. In theory, a monk doesn't have to live in a community. There are hermits. Um, We find them in the deserts of Egypt near the end of the Roman Empire, for instance. But I think when most people think of monk or monastery, they have this idea of a community of figures living together. And I think that's a good way to start to get into it, that a monastery is a community of monks living together. All right. So what makes this different from any other type of community? Well, obviously, they're there for religious purposes. They are there to live a religious life. And so we can think of a monastery as kind of a community defined by a shared commitment to the religious life. But that still doesn't get us all the way because we have other things that fall under that description. So, for instance, cathedral clergy or something or clerics or priests or something. Those could be religious communities as well. So what is it that makes a monastery different from them? A big part of it is the commitment to the ascetic life. Um, And asceticism is the practice of renunciation of property, of worldly pleasures, of desires of personal desires for the purposes of achieving spiritual perfection or spiritual progress or something like that. And in some ways, this is really the defining feature of monasticism, that it's a religious community defined by the shared commitment to the ascetic life and towards spiritual progress through ascetic disciplines, through fasting, through highly regulated sleep schedules, through obedience to the abbot and to all of his commands and things like this. And I think a useful way that I often explain monasticism to my students um, is to think of a monastery as kind of a totalizing institution. Um, And by this, I mean that every part of a monk's life is defined by his being a monk and by his commitment to the ascetic life and to living as part of this community of ascetics. Whereas for us in sort of our everyday lives, right, my job as an LIU professor isn't a totalizing profession, right? It's part of my life, but it doesn't determine all of my life. Whereas one of the defining features of a monastery is that every aspect of your life, your sleep schedule, your dietary regime, your recreational activities, such as you have them, everything is directed towards the purposes of ascetic discipline, of living the religious life or something like this. And I think this is a useful way to think about what separates a monastery from other types of communities or institutions that people belong to. Right. And there you you mean separate kind of metaphorically there or abstractly (laughs) there, but they are also separate. Exactly. No, you're right. Yeah. So another good way to talk about a monastery is to think of it. And in some ways, this is because it's a totalizing institution. It's so it's supposed to be like self-sufficient as well. Self-enclosed. Enclosure is often a metaphor that's used to talk about uh, monks and the monastic life that in theory, it's supposed to be set apart from the world, that the monastery is a little self-contained world separate from the secular world, the sec, the seculum. Um, and that it, you know, it has, there's a boundary, um, sometimes physical, but often conceptual separating the world of the monastic community from the world at large. Absolutely. So what is it that, that, that monks are doing in their seclusion? What does it mean to actually be living, uh, an ascetic lifestyle and to be, be devoted to the religious life? So I think here, uh, a good way to 
break that down is to look at the sort of founding document of Western medieval monasticism, which is the rule of St. Benedict, um, which becomes at, at the time of its composition um, near the end of the Roman Empire in the sixth century. Um, it's an obscure text. Um, no one really knows about it, possibly composed by this guy named Benedict, although we have virtually no sources for his life or anything like that. But by the eighth century had become sort of the canonical text for how to live the monastic life. And so it's a good place to sort of think about, all right, what happens in a monastery on a daily basis? And the rule of St. Benedict basically envisions three things, three components to the monastic life. The most important of them in the central aspect of monastic life is the liturgy, which is this kind of cyclical practice of daily prayers carried out in a communal and ritual setting. Um, so it usually involves chanting the Psalms along with readings from the Bible and responsories and antiphons and all these other things. But this kind of cycle of communal ritualized prayer, the divine office, is possibly the most central aspect of monastic vocation. It's highly scheduled, it's highly regulated, and it involves sort of sticking to a very objective framework of time. The second aspect that it envisions is manual labor. Um, and this can mean lots of different things, but basically monks are supposed to do work. Um, you know, they're supposed to harvest food. They're supposed to prepare meals. They're supposed to repair things. They're supposed to be involved in manual labor that supports the monastery. Yes, right. It has practical benefits, economic benefits even. But really, it's supposed to be about discipline, about self-discipline and stuff like this. And then the third area it envisions is study. Um, we, or reading, perhaps more specifically, is what it often talks about. But study is a little bit broader word. That is to say, you're supposed to learn religious concepts. You're supposed to read things about monastic spirituality and develop a better understanding of your spirituality. An interesting thing here is that in the rule of St. Benedict, there's a single chapter that talks about manual labor and biblical study, um, almost as if they're kind of reconcilable behaviors here. One sort of forms outer discipline. Discipline, one kind of forms inner discipline or something like this. And if you add all three of these aspects up together, you kind of get a sense of what the daily cycle of monastic life would be. Alternating periods of prayer, ritualized communal prayer, labor, and study would be the main things. The rule of St. Benedict also emphasizes things like total obedience to the abbot. This is one of its defining features. And so the monastery was a place where monks were expected to give up their self-will and their self-desires and follow the abbots, the leader of the monastery, the abbots' instructions when it came to all these daily practices. And listeners to this show, listeners to the network are aware that I joined the army after high school. And I think yeah. I have probably mentioned from time to time that I got medically discharged from the, the military. I didn't want to get out. I enjoyed the army and would have liked to have, have stayed in. And uh, one of the things I was thinking about doing when I knew I was going to have to get out of the army was uh, join a religious order yeah. <laughs> because of some of these parallels, right? This this sounds a lot like what military life was like for and, me. And indeed, 
Benedict um, and other early monastic writers recognize this parallel, one of the most common metaphors for talking about, or one of the most common sort of strands of metaphors for talking about the monastic life is the military, um, that monks are soldiers, kind of the army of God and stuff like this. And it's occasionally made quite explicit that that what monks are doing daily in their renunciation of self-will and their renunciation of pleasure is battling demons. Um, this is what they do. Monks are always battling against demons um, in some ways. And you will find descriptions of the monastic life um, just absolutely saturated with various forms of military metaphors. Yeah, and there's been a ton of scholarly work recently yeah. on on exactly that that relationship, and that that doesn't end in the Middle Ages either. I mean, no. the order I was really thinking about joining the Jesuits are you know founded by a former soldier and modeled specifically yeah. explicitly on on being like the military, and that had a, a real appeal to me. I, I obviously didn't didn't go and do that. How many people are we talking about in a in a monastery? Like like just your kind of average monastery? Yeah, so I, this varies radically. I don't know, like. 25 to 40, I guess, as a, a median number, but it has a high level of statistical variance, right? Your mm -hmm. great imperial monasteries um, uh, of, you know, during the Carolingian Empire and the Ottonian Empire could have many times that number of monks. But also there are small priories out there that could be staffed by like three or four monks. Um, so, I, I mean, I think thinking, you know, in the in the the range between, you know, I think zooming in around 40 as a as a way to sort of conceptualize the organizational logistics of a monastery is kind of a useful way to think about it. But we should definitely be aware that that a community of monks, what a monastery is, can look very, very differently. And of course, our, our sources are a little biased on this because the bigger monasteries tend to survive longer and tend to produce more sources, whereas a priory of three monks um, will likely go extinct at some point when it's no longer useful and will probably hardly leave any records behind for us to know about it. So one of the things that that you know person on the street will will think of when when asked you know about the Middle Ages is the extent to which everyone in the Middle Ages was super into Christianity and the ways that yeah. <laughs> the church really dominated uh, Western Europe during this during this time. So with with that in mind, I guess how many like what percentage of people were monks? Oh, a very small percentage, tiny percentage overall. Wow, I don't know an exact percentage, but it must be like it must be like one, right, or less. Right. Yeah, I mean, um, I wasn't sure you were going to have a real answer for that question because, like, it's not like we have census data, right? So, I mean, I, you know, this is a problem for all for all medieval subjects, right? We know most about the aristocracy, the clergy, and the monks, but most people are none of those, um, right? Most 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 denizens of the Middle Ages. Um, don't belong to any of those communities in society. Yeah, it's interesting. They, they definitely, uh, monasteries I know, command a kind of prominent position, I think, in sort of our conception of the Middle Ages and so forth. And they, they would have been vital centers of culture, of learning, of economic growth and, and stuff like this. It's very likely that even if most people were not monks, most people interacted with a monastery on some level at some point in their life, I think. Um, but yeah, we, we should be careful about thinking about how prominent they were as institutions, especially in the early Middle Ages, I think, um, and, and sort of how many people dedicated themselves to this way of life. 
Yeah, so we should make a distinction about the sort of periodization of the the Middle Ages, right? The Middle Ages, it's a thousand years and it's not monolithic. I mean, that yeah. a thousand years is a long freaking time. Culture is changing, society is changing, institutions, all sorts of change happening uh, throughout the, the Middle Ages. I mean, language change is a massive thing that happens in the Middle Ages. And you work on the High Middle Ages, which is, you know, really kind of the classic thing. That's what people think yeah. of when, when you say Middle Ages to people. I still can't get my father to, to realize that uh, I don't work on nights. There are no nights in the period that, I, that, yeah. I, <laughs> that I study, but there are nights in the period that you study in the in the high middle ages. And that's really where I think our classic picture of monasticism comes from as well. And I suspect that that's really, that is what Asimov has in mind here as he's envisioning what the foundation will be like. And so monasteries in the high middle ages, I think do play a, a pretty big role in medieval culture and, and also in medieval learning, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's true. Well, I'll answer this question two ways. Um, the 12th century, the, the period I sort of work on is often considered to be in the Middle Ages, the, 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 the great moment for the monasteries, the great moment of the flourishing of the monastic life. Um, and a lot of this has to do with the fact that there is a, a big proliferation of kind of forms of monasticism going on this time, which is to say, um, we begin to get lots of different groups that eventually call themselves orders, um, like the Cistercians, like the Carthusians, that complement the kind of more traditional monks that we sometimes refer to as Benedictines. And all of these make important contributions to monastic culture and stuff like this. And so especially in the 12th century, as there's both sort of competition and yet diversification in the monastic life, they become absolutely critical contributors um, to learning, to culture. Um, they're already major repositories of knowledge um, on account of their libraries and so forth. But this is also the moment when monks really begin to compose a lot of remarkable works of spiritual, having to do with spiritual life and spiritual discipline about how to live the religious life. The 12th century um, really in terms of monastic learning it is often considered to be the high point, so much so um, that the, the great scholar of monastic learning, Jean Leclerc, who wrote a book whose English title um, is called The Love of Learning and the Desire for God, coined the phrase monastic theology to talk about the existence of a distinctly monastic form of learning that reaches its pinnacle in the 12th century before, before sort of being displaced by scholasticism in universities and all sorts of things like this. Um, this idea is not so widely accepted anymore amongst scholars. And yet, nonetheless, the underbelly of the idea that there is a, an important moment in the 12th century for monasteries I mean, in terms of their contribution to learning and to education still tends to be one that I think most scholars would accept. That said, I, Asimov also has in mind this older idea, I think, as well, when he talks about foundation, which is that somehow monasteries are the sites of the preservation of culture and knowledge um, through the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, that things kind of fall apart, culturally speaking, generally across most of Europe. But there's these little bastions of monasteries where texts are preserved, um, where learning is preserved, where Latinity is preserved, um, that, that somehow serve as little sites of preservation and stuff. This idea, I think most scholars would not accept either. They'd point to the important role of bishops and various other institutions as providing continuity through that period. But this is 
a powerful idea that somehow um, monasteries served as the sites um, in which kind of classical culture was preserved, or if not classical culture, in which learning was preserved through the quote unquote dark ages. And there are a number of places where that 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 picture comes from, and and actually mostly I think really from the the early Middle Ages, the period of the Middle Ages that's yeah. you know the starts in the fifth century, that is the sixth uh, seventh century. We've got figures like like Bede in in northern yeah. England, who is often seen as I mean he's this important monk, but like really he's this scholar, right? Yeah. He's this pinnacle of of learning. He's someone who's very concerned about the library of his monastery, sending people off to Rome. Yeah. You know they've got other. things. Things they're doing there, but one of the big things they're doing is, you know, going through their shopping list of books, right? If you can find Absolutely. a copy of this book, bring it back. We'll make more copies and and so on. And that is something that monks are certainly up to in the early Middle Ages, but it would be a mistake to see that as the only or most important thing that they are up to, or to see them as the only people doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I will point to the example of uh, Cassiodorus, I think, um, mm-hmm. who was uh, who lived in the late fifth century into the sixth century, um, who was himself a, a Roman statesman and administrator for, for the king of the King Theodoric of the Ostrogoths, um, the, the, the figure who eventually establishes a quote unquote kingdom in Italy itself in the heartland of the Roman empire. And Cassiodorus, who was this kind of Roman statesman is somebody who in his retirement decides to go back to his country estate and found a monastery, which is called Vivarium there, where he turns to sort of the religious life, but even more so to learning. And it's there that he writes this really famous work called the Institutes or the Institutes of Divine and Secular Learning, as we now usually call it, which is this kind of quasi encyclopedic work that attempts to lay out this educational curriculum, kind of reconciling Christian and secular forms of learning. Um, And there you can really get a sense of the ways I think, in which foundation is echoing some of these kind of late imperial, early medieval institutions like Cassiodorus's monastery, where they, they establish this religious community um, in the service of learning, in the service of education, with the goal of kind of consolidating um, a, a curriculum of study that's going to endure and, and Cassiodorus is a really interesting figure in, in terms of thinking about what's going on in the political narrative of foundation yeah. as well, because he, he's actually a really important figure in the fall of the Roman Empire. He, as a, as a young person, as you said, he's working for Theodoric, who is this Ostrogothic king who rules Italy, but went to Italy with an army given to him essentially by the, the emperor in Constantinople. <laughs> Theodoric grew yeah. up in Constantinople. He's actually there to overthrow some other general who's been exercising power, then once he wins, he kind of just tears up his orders yeah. from the emperor and actually even, uh, well, it's just some complicated stuff that goes on on there. Some really interesting, really fascinating stuff. In fact, we should pause here and say actually simply that uh, the fantasy writer Guy Gabriel Kay, who I've covered on this show, uh, has written two novels called The, the Serentine Mosaic about exactly this moment that someday I'm going to get to. I might drag you into those as well. As well, Jay, it would be fun to read those. Great, great books. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I have not read them 
time since I've used Cassiodorus to, you know, write a PhD dissertation. Yeah, right. I used Procopius, the Greek historian who wrote so much about what's going on in Italy in the sixth century. But Cassiodorus works for Theodoric as a scribe. We have letters that he, uh, that, uh, written by Theodoric or written by Cassiodorus on behalf of Theodoric, sent to people like Gundabad in Lyon, for example, yeah. sent to the emperor in Constantinople that we have today because Cassiodorus published those as uh, as a book. He, he wrote, he published a book that is a collection of his letters, which was a, a very common thing for people to do in late antiquity. So as well as this book on on learning uh, and, and a number of other books uh, as well. But he also survived the overthrow of that state that yeah. he worked for when it's reconquered by the emperor or by the empire in the in the sixth century and ends up moving to Constantinople. So an extraordinarily important uh, person who managed to survive a lot of the chaos and uncertainty of this process of the, the disintegration, a violent process of the disintegration of the, the Roman Empire. I, I think there's an, also an interesting point here to make for um, the nature of Avarium as a monastery, which is that Cassiodorus essentially took his family's Roman estate and transformed it into the monastery of Avarium, which is not an unusual story, actually. And in some ways, it is possible to imagine the kind of early socioeconomic history of monasteries um, as one in which um, the kind of economy based on Roman villas, Roman aristocratic estates are repurposed into monastic communities that, you know, as, as religious communities, they become something else, these communities of religious culture and so forth. But as economic units, they very much sort of carry through um, a, a kind of Roman economic system based around these country estates. They're modeled after them in a lot of ways. And in this sense, they do kind of show uh, a kind of way in which monasteries perpetuated certain aspects of the Roman Empire. Right. And culturally as, as well, the, yeah, the, absolutely. I, the idea, because all, so many of the things that monasteries are getting up to, or these particular things that monasteries are getting up to, the cultural stuff here, the learning really grows out of what Roman aristocrats have been doing for centuries. I mean, even yeah. before Christianity is on the scene, or at least before they are, are Christians, the Roman, Roman aristocrats, Roman elite are, are Christians. When when you're older, as a, as a member of the Roman elite, and you're done with your political career or your military career or both, what you are supposed to do is retire to your country estate and live a life of of leisure and learning. Yeah. You, you know, you go hunting, you read poetry, you write poetry, you write letters to your friends about the poetry that you're reading and writing and that they're writing and so on. You have people over for extended visits, and you you have poetry yeah. readings. You sponsor stuff like that. You send, uh, you know, you give money and and other forms of material support to people involved in the arts and so on and that is essentially what happens with the the church in the early middle ages that takes yeah. on those roles because the people running the church are these roman elite who uh, instead of retiring retiring from the world are now retiring into these offices frequently as bishops and so you know bishops yeah. uh, in cities are doing these things as well but then also yeah frequently as abbots uh, there's this great moment in, uh, you know, this kind of classic moment in um, the Confessions of Augustine of Hippo, who, you know, becomes one of the, the great late antique writers, um, figuring out the nature of, of sort of Christian culture in the world of the late Roman Empire. And there's this funny moment where he and his buddies are hanging out and they're sort of frustrated with life and they decide what they want to do is just like 
go out to the countryside and create a little community where they can sit around and just learn and study together <laughs> and where on a rotating basis, one of them will be like in charge of running things like getting food and running the economics of it. And everybody else just sits to sit around and live this life of of intellectual leisure or something like that. And the idea is extremely attractive to them and extremely in keeping with a well-established tradition, as you say. And then it ends with them all being like, well, we can't really do this because we all have wives already. <laughs> Most of these these monasteries in early Christianity and late antique Christianity as well, I should maybe not paint with such a broad brush as that, but many monasteries or many monks maybe were, are actually people who are retiring uh, yeah. off to, to monasteries. And in fact, couples will do this together. They will retire to a monastery together. This is very, yeah. very common in the fifth century. These usually are monasteries that then are also in cities. Uh, yeah. And so they kind of still maintain like their their friendship with each other, even if they're they're not maintaining an actual married life. But that's a really common, uh, really common thing to do. So you know, there's hope for hope for them at the end. Although not for Augustine, who uh, who who dies in his city of of Hippo while the uh, the Vandals are at the gates. I've always been amused by this. I don't know if you know this or not, Glenn, but um, near where you and I grew up um, in Naperville, there is a, a university called Benedictine University, which is attached to a monastery right there. Right. Um, and a, a adjacent to that monastery and to that university is a retirement community. And I can't remember what it's called, but it's a, it's a little slogan on like, you know, the gates as you drive into it is retirement living in the Benedictine tradition. And, yeah. and every time I used to drive by that when I was home on breaks in grad school, I was just like, man, do they understand what a long tradition they're part of here? Retiring to a Benedictine monastery, basically. Yeah, this is uh, the Sacred Heart, I, I think. That's right. right. Which, yeah, the Sacred which Heart Monastery. Yeah. You and I never went to while we were in high school, but was actually one of the the hangout places that, uh, you know, for the, the goth circle that I ran with at that, oh, at that point. I didn't know that. You know, it was not quite a cemetery, right? But basically. Right. Yeah. <laughs> same thing. Right. Same thing. Va vaguely religious. Vaguely. Kind of, some kind of sacred space we can go hang out and be gothy in. Yeah, yeah wear black and wish you were a vampire. I mean, yeah, that's exactly. um, I miss the 90s. <laughs> oh, good times. All right. Well, that that is a lot on monasteries sort of in their actual historical context. So let's let's move into thinking about the Encyclopedia Foundation here in this novel as a type of medieval monastery. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it is, you know, the, the, I think Asimov's idea here is he's very much drawing on this kind of trope of, uh, monastic communities, um, as sites, um, for the preservation of culture. This, I mean, this is literally what we're initially presented with is the idea behind foundation that what it is going to do is preserve knowledge, um, through these coming political and economic catastrophes and that this act of preservation will somehow be the seed um, for rebirthing culture more quickly than otherwise would have been possible or something. And I do, th you know, I, I, I do think he's drawing on this kind of um, historical idea of, of this as one of the major roles of monastic communities um, in the late imperial or the, in the late antique period, for sure. Right. So what are some specific things that we see people up to here at the Encyclopedia Foundation that maybe look like something monks would be up to? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I'll mention two things that really seem to distinguish foundation um, as sort of being a monastic space or something like that. First of all, there is this sense of seclusion or claustration um, in 
in the foundation, um, which is to say this guy, Salvor Hardin, who's the mayor on Terminus, is clearly an outsider. He has to kind of come into the foundation space to meet with Peren. Um, and, and there's clearly some sense in which the foundation exists outside both jurisdictionally and practically of the rest of society on Terminus, that it is cloistered to use a very monastic word or something like that. And then inside, um, you have these figures who don't really seem to interact with anybody except themselves. They're a very inward facing community and so forth. And what they seem to be doing, what they seem to be spending their day doing is um, compiling records of learning and education and everything they can get. In effect, what they are, um, our scribes, our monastic scribes, um, this kind of uh, classical image of the monk with a quill in his hand, um, peering down and sort of copying a manuscript as a kind of fundamental activity of monastic life. In effect, these guys are microfilm scribes. They are compiling and <laughs> recording everything they can. Yeah, microfilm monk is. Uh, I don't know. That's a good band name, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Right. It, the, there are, of course, way more than forty of them. There are 150,000 of them, which is just mind-boggling. That's a very large monastery. <laughs> yeah, that's. The, there aren't even 150,000 professors in the United States, like all the universities yeah, put together. Exactly. Right. That is a lot of scholars yeah. and scientists. Yeah, in this one is like place. a little monastic city, right? 150,000 is is you know more than the population of mid-sized towns. So. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, that's an, it's an absurd number, but I mean, that's cool. I would, you know, if, if this foundation were like an actual real thing and they weren't involved in the fall of the Roman Empire, I would like to go to this place and work there. It seems, this it seems really great. This would be a good great. job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This gets us back to the funny point we made earlier, which is, you know, in this galactic empire, these guys were able to secure funding for the largest university <laughs> in like galactic history. Um, yeah. Just, just on this 10 minute pitch by this guy, Sarah. Oh my gosh. Now, how how big is the University of Trantor? Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> like, how yeah, many, did they, did they yeah. take every faculty member from it? <laughs> right. Yeah. From the entire it's, galaxy. Yeah, wow. I mean we should we should try to do a demography of the Galactic Empire at some point. That'll be a bonus episode we'll yeah, do at the end right. of the series. Yeah. Prosopo uh, Prosopography of the late Roman of the late Galactic Imperial University. I'm I'm only half joking about that uh, as like an actual project is the is the thing. Well, let me let me ask you a question here about about the people working at the foundation here in in terms of their in terms of parallels with being actual monks. So look, there are there are no women in this book. Yeah, <laughs> they good, just do they do point. not exist or at least in this part they do not exist or the first part. Do you think are are these men celibate or do they have families? That's a great question. I hadn't thought about it. Um, you know, so the interesting thing is I always associate um, monastic celibacy naturally with it being a practice of, of self-discipline, right? This is one of the ascetic, almost penitential practices you take on as a monk. You renounce these kinds of desires and pleasures and stuff like that. And one interesting thing um, to look at when you see foundation is there's really no depiction of any kind of shared ritual life, of any kind of uh, shared 
um, cultural disciplines or anything like this. It just seems to be a bunch of scholars kind of living together, like in all likelihood in Asimov's mind. Yeah, there were no women in the foundation whatsoever. But this may say more about the state of the university at his time than any parallels to monastic life or anything like this. Um, you know, it would have been fascinating, for instance, to imagine foundation rewritten a little bit so that foundation so that the people in foundation had a little bit more quasi ritual or quasi sacramental character in some ways. Um, you know, as if, you know, for instance, when Harry Seldon's recording came out of the vault, as if there was like, you know, a, a, a phrase or a, a chant or something they had right. to repeat before encountering him or something like this. You, you often find this trope in kind of, um, literature that plays with the borders between science and religion, um, whereby there are these kind of science leaning ritualized behaviors or, or something um, you can think of uh, like the, the stars, my destination has a cult kind of like that. The, the, the great Alfred Bester novel that um, the main character spends some time with. Um, and yet we see none of this in foundation, right? It's, it's just purely a kind of scholarly activity there. There's no sense of this kind of um, ritual life or anything like that. And I usually associate celibacy as a concept with some kind of ritual leaning, um, religious leaning lifestyle or something like that, which we really, which, which really just kind of seems to be absent here in some ways. Yeah. These guys, I don't think are, are doing any kind of bodily abnegation. I think they're eating just no. fine. I think they're drinking just fine and yeah. they probably do have wives. It's also totally unclear where they live. Do they live in the foundation complex or do they just live in the town and then they come into work, the commute to work in like, you know, their space car or whatever every yeah. day, totally unclear. We don't get anything about like the, their daily lives, their private yeah. lives, their personal lives at all here. But my guess is that are it's they more professors like professors or are they monks? Yeah, right. right. And I think my guess is that they are more like professors than monks, yeah. that they do live out in the town and come to work, but they but they may not. And and because we don't get any of that information, it really all just feels so monastic, even where maybe yeah. that might not be quite as much what, what Asimov actually had in mind as it being just more like, you know, Columbia. Yeah, I, I mean, I think definitely he's playing with the idea. I, I, surely he must have been aware of the notion of monasteries or other institutions similar to them as repositories for knowledge um, as as the Roman Empire kind of collapses. And I, I do think that has to be the genesis of the idea of foundation. Even the word foundation Absolutely. does does have this kind of quasi religious tone about it or something but he he really does not push the metaphor that far um in the end that it, it, for him basically he takes the idea of an entity like this as the repository for knowledge but pretty much leaves it at that in some ways there's there's no sense of like a liturgical life in the foundation there's no sense of of disciplinary renunciation or anything. If anything, you know, the, the recurrent phrase over and over again, we are scientists. We're just scientists. That's all these guys will say is, yeah, we're just scientists. This doesn't matter to us. That's really the closest you get. I think to the, to it evoking a kind of monastic culture in the sense that their repeated emphasis, this is all we do <laughs> echoes a little bit, the kind of, the, the kind of totalizing institution of a monastic foundation. One of the things we didn't talk about when we were talking about monasteries in the 12th century in, in Western Europe is 
how monks do actually get the food and wine and beer uh, that they are consuming. How does that actually work? You, you did talk about them farming a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, by the 12th century, that's probably a, a not super common. I mean, monasteries are major economic institutions. Um, they own they own large amounts of land. Um, they produce you know, all the, the standard crop, you know, that they, they exist as an agrarian economic institution. And in some cases, yeah. Okay. Um, if you read the rule of St. Benedict, you might get a sense that the monks are doing all this labor, um, and stuff like that. But in reality, they're, they're landlords. Um, and they would have had laborers, tenant laborers and stuff like that, that would have been producing, um, much of the sort of daily economic necessities for the community, I think. Um, and if anything, by the 12th century, this is probably even more true. Um, you know, we, we do have, you know, knowledge of Cistercian monks in the 12th century as this kind of scholarly idea of them as major drivers of an agrarian revolution. They're carving out all these new um, arable lands by felling forests and stuff like that. But I think we must limit the idea that the monks themselves are doing a lot of this, right? I mean, if a monastery is a major economic institution, it's got acres and acres. it's a massive landlord. It's got tons of, of, of viable land and stuff like this. And right, a community of 40 to 50 monks or even 120 monks, like, can't run that, basically. And, and so they, they have tenants, right? They, they have tenant farmers um, who are doing this work for them in most cases. Right. And and that is then essentially the relationship, I think, that we see between Perenne and Hardin here, where Perenne is running the monastery. He's running yeah. the foundation, and that's what he's concerned about. But all the business of actual like material culture, of keeping his people fed and sheltered and clothed, is all being undertaken by people outside of the establishment for them, essentially. And when the... Uh, and when the- envoy from Anacreon comes, he comments on the strangeness of the situation on Terminus that, um, you know, that Hardin, for instance, is jurisdictionally subservient um, to Peren, that the board of trustees is the ultimate authority on the planet, um, and that the civil government is is subservient to it, that there are no titles, there are no lordly titles or anything like that, no manor houses or anything. He finds it very odd that a scholar would be in charge of everything there. This is the, the, the term he uses, like this man is just a scholar. Why is he in charge of everything here? <laughs> And and something that we would see historically vary from monastery to monastery and really from abbot to abbot is how involved an abbot wants to be in the maintenance of the agricultural work, the maintenance of the farms themselves and also the laborers who work on the farm, whether they're free uh, tenants or semi-free serfs or slaves, if we're talking about the early Middle Ages, that yeah. some monasteries or some abbots will be very involved in that, that they will want to manage the books, they will also want to adjudicate any issues between or among tenants. Uh, but then there will also be some abbots who don't have a lot of interest in that and will turn all of that over or most of that, much of that anyway, over to a steward of sorts. Yeah. And that's clearly who Peren is here. Like Peren is the type of abbot who wants nothing to do with that and has turned all of that over to Harden. Yes. And in that sense, um, sets the stage for his own elimination from the the scene in some ways um, right. when Hardin finally in exasperation orchestrates his coup at the end of part two. Right. When Hardin actually says, yeah, figuring out how we're all going to eat 
and not become in, enslaved by by a conquering power is maybe yeah. more important than uh, than copying down books. <laughs> You're making copies of books. Yeah, is as uh, the plot of this. So one of the things that we we get here in this part of Foundation is some continuation about what is going on with the fall of the Galactic Empire and the end of civilization. We spent a lot of time on this last time, and we get a, a, a check-in here. So so let's talk about that uh, now as well. And we're just going to go through some passages again, very much like we did last time. So on the theme of of science and stagnation, we get, uh, get some really great passages here. The first one I want to look at is from Lord Dorwin, who is this envoy from the Imperial government, from the Galactic Empire, who's visiting the Foundation. And here's something that he says, and this is on page uh, 56 and, and 57 of the Everyman's Library edition that we are using if, uh, if you want to follow along at home. I've got the works of all the old masters, the great archaeologists of the past. I weigh them against each other, balance the disagreements, analyze the conflicting statements, decide which is probably correct, and come to a conclusion. That is the scientific method. And so this is something here, right, that links up very much with the comments you were making last time, Jay, but sort of characterizing, uh, or at least talking about the characterization of medieval learning as being based on authority rather than based on uh, experiment or, or new research. Uh, and this is something that we talked about as being Asimov's critique of medieval learning and, and monasticism, perhaps. Yeah, it's interesting. This is such a a funny statement to find here um, because it's it's treated, I think, by um, Hardin, the character in the novel, but also by Asimov, the author, um, in a very condescending, very derogatory way that here we have an archaeologist who doesn't go and do field work, but instead reads the work of previous archaeologists and balances their statements against each other um, to decide which one he thinks is probably accurate. And I have to say that in some ways, it's not a bad snapshot into some of medieval learning. Now, now a lot of medieval learning um, in its most caricature form, um, when we think about it relying on authority, thinks of it as simply deferential to authority, that you simply repeat, you, you absorb and repeat the ideas of the great authorities of the past. I- interestingly, it's not exactly what Lord Dorwin here is saying he does. He, he reads all the great authorities and then balances the conflicting statements against each other um, and decides which one he thinks is correct, which is a little, little bit different than being purely deferential. And for a Medievalist reading this, you are automatically, inevitably, uh, what this immediately calls to mind um, are works such as the Sicket Non, the yes and no of Peter Abelard, the 12th century scholar who writes an enormous theological work in which he essentially goes through all the works of the great old church theologians of the fourth century, finds conflicting statements from them uh, having to do with key theological questions and tries to reconcile them with each other and produce a, a, a way to reconcile these conflicting statements. Um, or the legal equivalent of it is the what's called the Decretum of Gratian, a, a great church law collection that essentially does the same thing, goes through all previous statements of popes and canons and 
conciliar decrees and tries to find contradictions between them and then to reconcile them. Um, and so Asimov has has hinted here at, at a, a real aspect uh, of medieval intellectual life. Interestingly, he seems to be treating it here as evidence of stagnation because this guy doesn't go out and do archaeology. He only reads books. Medievalists actually tend to think of this moment um, where when scholars begin to try to reconcile the conflicts between authorities as one of the moments in which they're moving beyond simple, simple deference to authority. In this particular case, I think in thinking about archaeology, yeah. when actual archaeologists have moved on to doing this type of work, it, it means that they've, they've kind of graduated from just digging stuff up out of the ground, which I don't mean to disparage. But in yeah. terms of thinking about the history of the profession, 19th century archaeologists who are responsible for a ton of what we have been able to unearth about the period that we're talking about, the historical periods that we're talking about, late antiquity, the early Middle Ages, the high Middle Ages as well. Uh, we're kind of just treasure hunters. Yeah. And so this is actually the move that gets made when people are wanting to to push this into actual scholarship, where it's not just like, hey, let's go find Troy because that would be cool. But like, let's methodically spend decades on one site scraping off yeah. millimeters of dirt every year and relentlessly cataloging what we've got and trying to make sense of it. And, and let us never forget everything I need to know about life. I learned from Indiana Jones. Correct. And what does, and what does Indy have to tell us about this? 90% of all archaeology is done in the library, reading, <laughs> research. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Indiana Jones, as always, an excellent life and professional model. <laughs> always. I mean, when it's time for office hours, he just climbs out the window, which is exactly. solid He's advice, great. really. <laughs> yeah, this is, it's wonderful. And his office is like, you know, a storeroom of antiques also. <laughs> yes. Well, that's another question that I had about this with archaeology, because I just think archaeology actually was a really weird discipline for Asimov to pick here. I, I mean, agree. I get that one of the things he's doing is wanting to, to lay this seed of like, won't it be cool? You know, or isn't it cool that these humans, these homo sapiens don't actually know about Earth? Uh, that like it's one of the possible candidates for where humans came from that and that is cool i mean that's some cool sci-fi stuff there but archaeology is maybe not the best discipline to have picked for this because there are real problems with the ability to actually go back to an archaeological site like that's like that's what harden is suggesting why don't you yeah. go to these planets and look yeah. at the archaeological sites there that people were working on literally 800 or some of them thousands of years ago like those sites are gone and shouldn't these artifacts actually don't they belong in a museum yeah exactly i mean i i think what why asimov chose this i agree with you absolutely why he chose it i think was because he really wanted to hammer home um the idea that somehow learning had receded and and his way of doing this was to pick a field that he thought was mostly about field work and then to suggest that actual field work has now been given up in favor of just reading people at this point. And, you know, it, 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 I, so I'm not a trained archaeologist or anything like that, but my guess is that this as a sort of statement of condescension um, might not be that successful on Asimov's part because probably a ton of archaeology is, is not just field work, right? Like, like you said. Um, but I think this is what he was trying to convey here that somehow People had given up on the most innovative, the most advancing part of intellectual life here, where you actually go out and discover new stuff in favor of just reading the same old books over and over again. 
And archaeology, because it has a fieldwork component, works for that metaphor in a way that maybe like, I don't know, philosophy doesn't, I suppose. No, I think that's that's absolutely right. Or, or even like physics, right, where you could just duplicate yeah. experiments. You don't have to go to a particular site to to try to do some kind of, a, you know, at least basic level experiment with light or gravity or something, something like that. Right. Like you could you could duplicate the work of both Newton and Einstein kind of, you know, well, here on Terminus or anywhere you want yeah. to be. But this is about specific sites and, and so on. So, yeah, there are good reasons why why he has picked this. But we are and, and Asimov is, you know, he's grown up in the world where this type of work where archaeology is treasure hunting it is the work yeah. of adventurers uh, stuff yeah. that's headline news that's real exciting i mean you know like literally as asimov is writing this story in the 40s indiana jones and his dad are busy finding the holy grail you know that's before right. the nazis yeah. do so i know, you know literally at the exact same time that yeah. asimov the Ark of the covenant's already been discovered so. already yeah that was that was like two months before this story was published i think so well let's uh, let's look at another bit of of text here this is on page uh, 52 of the the everyman's library book and this is uh, this is Hardin speaking, uh, dressing down, I suppose, the uh, the board of trustees here. Your bunch here is a perfect example of what's been wrong with the entire galaxy for thousands of years. What kind of science is it to be stuck out here for centuries, classifying the work of scientists of the last millennium? Have you ever thought of working onward, extending their knowledge and improving upon it? No. You're quite happy to stagnate. The whole galaxy is, and has been for space knows how long. That's why the periphery is revolting. That's why communications are breaking down. That's why petty wars are becoming eternal. That's why whole systems are losing nuclear power and going back to barbarous techniques of chemical power. I mean, it's a remarkable claim um, and, you know, is very much of a piece with with what Asimov was trying to show with Lord Darwin's statement a moment ago that somehow um, in the act of preserving and simply recording and classifying the work of scientists that somehow we have lost any um, sense of forward momentum in knowledge production and discovery and things like this. And it's interesting that two points that are interesting in this statement. First of all, Hardin says that this has been going on for thousands of years in the galaxy, um, that this stagnation that feels very much of the moment, according to Hardin, actually does have deep roots for like thousands of years, that scientifically the, ga the galactic empire has been stagnant for a thousand years, which explains why they still rely on nuclear power, I suppose. Um, but also the, the grand claim that Hardin makes here, I think, in Asimov's voice, essentially, about the effects of this scientific or this intellectual stagnation, right? In the end, this is the cause of everything. The whole galaxy is and has for years now. That's why communications are breaking down. That's why the periphery is vaulting, why petty wars are becoming eternal, why whole systems are losing nuclear power here. The, the claim is quite dramatic in some ways, not simply that there is a correlation between uh, intellectual stagnation and the collapse of the galactic empire. But in fact, it's a causal connection that this intellectual stagnation is the cause of everything that is going wrong within the empire at this point. And I've got some some skepticism about how that would actually go about 
working and, and what we would even mean by, by what, you know, what do we even mean by stagnation and what do we mean yeah. by collapse here? But, but Asimov is essentially saying that scientists have stopped doing really great science. You know, archaeologists are not out finding new sites anymore. They're just reading old archaeological reports and arguing about them on, you know, like internet message boards, I guess, you know, over and yeah. over again and not really doing anything new. People aren't doing anything new. There's no more innovation or at least not big innovation. Any innovation that's going on is maybe happening within the particular confines of, uh, of or the confines of particular traditions. And so there's nothing exciting going on. Like where's Newton? Where's Einstein? Uh, you know, for example. Yeah, that, that everybody's just recording how to run nuclear power plants at this point, not trying to find new sources of energy or anything like this. Um, and as a result, ironically, people have begun to lose even the ability to wield nuclear power at this stage. But I wonder, you know, what is really the the correlation between those things? So I think we can definitely say that that Asimov is envisioning a kind of causal relationship here between people who say go to nuclear engineering school, uh, you know, have majored in physics as undergrads and then go on and get advanced degrees in nuclear engineering. Or I don't know, maybe they were engineering majors, I suppose, as undergrads. Yeah. But there's there's maybe a general that that if their professors, their mentors, their teachers are not people who are, you know, big thinkers who are excited about innovation and developing new things, but are really just custodians of a 10,000 year tradition of knowledge, that, that that is a general attitude towards what knowledge is and also just the state of the world, really of just saying, well, the world is already perfect and we don't need to improve on it and we don't need to really be curious about anything. We already know everything. But I suspect that that you know, if we really sort of scratched at that, if we dug deeper into that, we would see that that's not emanating from the universities or from education, no. from scientists out. That the scientists in the universities, the universities themselves, right, are part of a broader culture where that is the the attitude, where people have just said, "Man, we invented Netflix, so let's just chill." Yeah, exactly. And I I think also like, you know. You know, not to not to thrash Asimov too hard here or anything, but in some ways, the, this depiction is a little bit unfair in some ways. You know, often when we're sort of designing classes and, and things like this, we think about the sort of metacognitive skills we want to teach students, um, analysis, critique. And yet one of those often is synthesis as as an important metacognitive skill, the idea to take disparate parts and bring them together into a coherent whole. Um, and I think most professors would accept that this is actually a really valuable skill to have. And especially in an age of kind of interdisciplinarity and stuff like that, the ability to draw pieces together, already known pieces together, um, is, is, is a, is a, high level intellectual activity. One of the odd conceits of this, this idea that he's got here is that somehow there could be an institution of 150,000 scholars whose job it is to bring together all human knowledge and yet somehow couldn't make any new discoveries while doing that, even if just by accident, <laughs> right? It, it, it's, it, it's the grandest project of synthesis that's ever been imagined or anything like that. And, you know, we imagine that it's not going to have any kind of d discoveries involved of it or anything like this. I, I think Asimov has, has a slightly unfair attitude as, as to the 
what what could be sparked by these works of recording and preserving and synthesizing in some ways? Just thinking about encyclopedias in our own historical tradition, in, encyclopedias as these big intellectual projects show up in show up at moments when there's a real intellectual, scientific, scholarly flourishing are yeah. almost always undertaken by someone who is also doing other things that we would definitely describe as being innovative or being done by people who are in a circle uh, or in an institution with people who are doing that type of work. That it all kind of comes out together. You know, I'm here just thinking of Isidore of Seville, who's yeah, um, in, the, in Visigothic the best Spain. Example. Yeah. yeah. And then also within the Enlightenment in France, people are putting together these encyclopedias or the actual model of the Encyclopedia Galactica here, which is, you know, is obviously the Encyclopedia Britannica is also coming out of a period of great innovation and curiosity, of great scholarship, of, of intellectual energy. Because because the the impetus to make encyclopedia encyclopedic works comes at moments where knowledge production is going so fast that it seems necessary to categorize it because the old categories aren't working anymore because the old organizational schema um, have proven too limited or something like that. Right. Precisely this encyclopedizing is, is a a side effect of radical surpluses of new knowledge. And so it's kind of a wonder, actually, that this thing that Harry Seldon imagines in part one of this book hasn't been done already, like 10,000 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and then because that's kind of the world that Asimov is presenting here is that it's been, you know, 10,000 years ago, we peaked and we've just been uh, in a state of decline since then. So shouldn't there already be a project like this? And so it seems like, you know, that Asimov is sort of is describing a galactic empire, a galactic civilization that is in a state of of stagnation and then in and then decline, but kind of showing us one that's maybe not, or at least that doesn't feel like it to me. I, I go back to this central paradox um, of, of the whole conceit here, which is that we apparently have an intellectually stagnant empire who is nonetheless willing at the drop of a hat to fund a project like this. Um, and And I find it just, you know, for, for, for me, this is almost a the the central contradiction of Asimov's work in some ways that it's very difficult for me to reconcile the scale and scope of this project um, with a civilization that is putatively on in intellectual stagnation at the moment. Like if, th- <laughs> if things are stagnant, like why does anybody even care about this encyclopedia? You know, why are there so many scholars willing to work on it? Yeah, why are there so many scholars at all? <laughs> because at all. Cause, cause yeah. look, this is not a job most scholars are actually going to want to sign up for. Most people are going to be like, actually, you know what? I kind of like living on Trantor. We've got theaters and great cocktail bars, music, you know, like I'm, I'm exactly. happy to be here. So I'm not going to go join you on, on Terminus. But yet he gets 100,000 yeah, of exactly. them to, to go with him. So, you know, that's got to be a small percentage. That's got to be a small percentage of actual scholars and scientists. So, you know, if we're thinking about a, a culture that that simply doesn't value innovation, doesn't value intellectual curiosity, which I think you and I both certainly would agree is not a a culture that we would really want to be a part of. That you know, yeah. if that described our culture, we would want to do something about it. You know, that that if 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 that is what the galactic empire is, you know, how do you actually go about remedying that? Or or if that is really any culture, how do you go about remedying that? How do you how do you create a culture that does value curiosity, that does value 
innovation, that, that values being an intellectual. Well, but you can do that from the top down. In fact, you have to do that from the top down, right? What it requires is government funding. Yeah. Government funding of education, of an education system. It, 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 there can be some other values too about what is that education for, obviously. But really what you're just talking about is people need to value school. People need to value learning and you can do that. And that you know, seems to be happening here, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And But I mean, the other interesting thing here too, you know, the wrinkle that Asimov throws into this entire thing is that even though we're speaking here in positive terms about the value of encyclopedizing as intellectual activity and, and how this could be proof of a very vibrant intellectual culture and stuff like that, um, in in the end, actually, the encyclopedia is is not the plan. <laughs> it's not the tool. Right. It's not the thing that matters, actually. Um, and and so there's the the there's you know there's an almost oddity about this entire thing whereby um, this, you know, this encyclopedia, which we're almost reading as evidence that, you know, wow, wow, the government's really willing to found uh, to, to fund intellectual endeavors. There's tons of scholars willing to work on this project for no other reason than scholarship itself to be scientists just for the sake of being scientists and so forth. All of that turns out to be passe in Selden's plan, actually. This whole plan is essentially like something that happened during the Cold War in yeah. uh, preparing for the end of the world because of nuclear annihilation and thinking that, well, we what we really need to do, we need to prepare to rebuild the world. And so let's go deep underground and put a repository of, of seeds, make a seed bank so that we can repopulate and, you know, the actual material life, we can do that. But then also, yeah, we need to use this cool new microfilm technology and catalog everything that we've got and bury it deep in a cave so that survivors can have access to it and rebuild the world that not from scratch, they won't have to reinvent the wheel or reinvent. Well, we actually probably don't want them to be able to reinvent nuclear power, but uh, yeah. you know, they want to, have to reinvent things essentially, right? So that they, they won't be having to start from scratch. These were real things that were happening during the Cold War, never quite to that scale, though people were certainly advocating for that type of thing. And that's that's what Asimov is kind of showing us here, that this is maybe not actually so much an intellectual scholarly endeavor as it is like a, a panic move of like, let's dig a hole and and bury everything in it so that gener you know generations from now, the survivors can uh, can have a little bit of a little bit of help. And that is, you know, why they're able to secure that government funding as well. You know, it, it's so funny. I, I, I'd never made this connection until you said it, but it, you're right. It's 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 right there. It's so obvious. And in fact, the use of microfilm would have been an evocative metaphor at the time. And the fact that the foundation is underground. Right. Um, like a bunker. Right. Um, absolutely. Would have been clear clear signals to the readers of this at the time um, as to the sort of Cold War, the underlying Cold War metaphor to it. Yeah, it's a great point. It will be real interesting to see what the TV show does with that. Yeah. If it really takes that one paragraph, it's really the only description that we get in the entire book of what the foundation itself looks like as a physical space yeah. to see if they take that and run with it or if they do something else. If it looks like the concerns of Asimov or if it looks like what our concerns are, that will be a cool thing to see. Does it look like a like a luxurious kind of underground university and stuff with you know old furniture and grandfather <laughs> clocks or does it look 
like a military bunker, right? right. Um, you know, th- that's that's an important aesthetic choice to make um, if you were going to film this. What what kind of ethos you want the foundation to have? Does it look like a monastery, right? I mean, yeah. So there are other things, of course, going on here in the, the end of empire than just this lack of curiosity, lack of innovation, this this intellectual stagnation, though Asimov is obviously saying that that's at the, the core of it. But I have I have questions about how the the empire breaking up, the disintegration of the empire, its breakdown into multiple parts from one, how that is actually leading to the loss of nuclear power. Asimov just doesn't spell that out for for us. In fact, he's much more clear about people are just actually not very good at even repairing their nuclear power plants anymore than he is at showing us what that has to do with the actual like independence of these prefectures. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the only hint we get, um, I'm looking at passages on page 57 and 58 um, when, when Lord Dorwin is there where it's hinted that there has been a, a, a meltdown of a nuclear power plant on planet five of Gamma Andromeda. Um, and, you know, Dorwin says, yeah, OK, there was a meltdown and, you know, it was pretty catastrophic. There was lots of radiation knowledge and Harden asked what was wrong with the plant. And Dorwin kind of says, well, who really knows? Uh, it had broken down some years Previously, it's so difficult these days to find men who really understand the more technical details of the powerful of the power systems and stuff like this. The suggestions here is that somehow basically know how like everybody is a mechanic now and can kind of repair stuff, but nobody understands the underlying systems or anything like that. And so inevitably, they're going to sort of decay and fall apart over time, which is apparently why the outer systems have lost nuclear power. And so it, it there's, it's funny. It's not even a sense that there's been sort of an economic meltdown where supplies can't get through, um, where parts can't get to the right places. There, there's no sense of material breakdown or anything like that. It's clearly put as a breakdown in know-how that they're simply not people trained to do this kind of work anymore. And that just does not strike me as something that would be the first cause, right? That's something that itself would be a symptom or be an effect, we should say, of some other cause like an economic decline, uh, lack of yeah. funding for schooling, which are not things that we seem to be seeing here. And another simply might as well be population decline. Uh, that is actually something that is hinted at here. There are a couple mentions of there there being fewer people, but you know we don't get any explanation as to why. Though certainly that can be a cultural yeah. thing as well. People are having you know less kids uh, for whatever reason. Though the fact that the population on Terminus has expanded by an order of magnitude in fifty yeah, years, in 50 literally, years. literally nine hundred thousand new humans <laughs> in fifty yeah, years. Yeah, I mean, if you start to break that down, how that happens in. Uh, in 50 years, yeah. it's either a highly fertile population or right. a highly desirable site for immigrants. Right. <laughs> well, I think we're led to believe, although nothing is said definitively on that, that it's just the foundation people who came here. Yeah, it, that and, seems to be the implication. Yeah. And I so. I, there, there's a there's another novel that I want written about about that about why that's happening. But but at any rate, elsewhere in the galaxy, it does seem like there's a, a population decline, and it seems like that must be just cultural social practices yeah. about reproduction because there doesn't seem to be any kind of disease or something like that that would be that would be happening or economic decline that would you know 
that would cause people to have fewer kids or start having kids later and therefore have fewer of them simply because there's not enough time to have, you know, five kids or something like that? I mean, the, the funny thing is, like, in, in terms of storytelling, you, the, the, the scenario in which Asimov has created here would be ripe for evoking a kind of Malthusian population crisis or mm-hmm. something like that that leads to sort of catastrophic demographic collapse um, accompanied by economic collapse or, or something like this, right? It's a perfect situation, you know, even if most people don't accept this kind of theory of economic collapse, it's a perfect situation to make that a storytelling device because you have this enormous empire, you have a planet who... Um, has no economic self-sufficiency, you know, its capital receives all of its economic supplies from dozen from all these surrounding planets, part of the empire and stuff, right? You could easily make this a story um, about sort of a, 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 a material collapse, right? The, the material conditions to support the empire no longer exist, right? Nuclear power is lost because um, there's there's not enough uh, political stability to transmit the fuel to all the planets. There's not enough labor uh, on these outlying planets to support it or something like that. that there'd be tons of ways to sort of depict that story, even just hinting at it in a couple of sentences or something. And yet Asimov comes back to this idea time after time that it's really a problem. It's really a problem of curiosity and intellect in the end that people have just like given up on studying nuclear power and thus we're going to lose it. Yeah, and I'm all for Asimov championing education and oh, yeah, intellectual to be sure. culture, just to be clear. I'm just not sure I buy the world building of it all that much. And and in particular, I guess just to translate, we'll, we'll do several layers of translating here, but to translate the breakup, the disintegration of the Galactic Empire to our own context. You know, So the disintegration of the Galactic Empire means loss of nuclear power, which then has some other ramifications. But if the United States broke up into, you know, 50 independent states, 50 independent countries again, like, would we lose gasoline? No. Like, yeah, like, I don't, it doesn't, <laughs> like, I don't know how that would, how that would work. Like what the one has to do with the other, but this is, you know, what Asimov is showing us is that, you know, that the, the the empire is breaking up and that is why there is or, or is leading to at least an exacerbation in the, the loss of this nuclear power. Or even if it's not that, it's it's having some other negative some other negative consequence, right? We keep equating, I guess what I'm getting at is that Asimov is equating the breakup of the political unity of this empire to also the end of or collapse of a particular material civilization, but yeah. is not drawing that connection for me at all. He's not showing us why it's leading to that. And it's interesting. I wonder if for us too, it's, it, you know, we, for, for us living today, whether we're just inclined to go in different directions because, you know, you and I live in a world where I think it's fair to say like, um, infrastructure is becoming a more critical issue, um, sort of every, every, every day, right. You know, our, our, our nationwide transportation system, not so great. We're decades behind on that. We've got decrepit airports in a lot of places. Like, like you and I, I, I don't know. This this is just kind of a zeitgeist of the moment, but there seems to be this feel that somehow um, infrastructure today is, is a little bit on the precipice in some ways. And yet, um, when we talk about why this is, we talk about 
political gridlock. We talk about governmental failures and stuff like this. Like nobody assumes right now, for instance, that the reason that that highways are in bad shape or anything like this um, is because there's not enough education in how to make highways. Right. 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 The, the, the zeitgeist of today is generally about there being sufficient political will to remedy the infrastructure situation for whatever reason. And I, I wonder if that, you know, if in this way we live in a kind of very different mental space than Asimov would have at the time, at the time he was writing, whereby, you know, for, for him, the problem with, you know, why infrastructure might not succeed or something like this ha- has less to do um, with governmental will or something like that. I, I don't know. I'm just bantering around ideas here. But I, I think it, maybe it would have been easier for him in his day to sort of blame material meltdown on a kind of intellectual cultural failure than we than we do today. Well, I think that's true. I, yes, I think it's definitely easier for him to do that. But Asimov is is writing this book at a time of, you know, well, I mean, okay, so it's in the middle of the Second World War, which is perhaps not something I should describe as a great time, but to think more broadly yeah, and on the heels of the Great Depression as well, I suppose. But thinking long term, thinking now from 2021, looking back on the 20th century, particularly if you know if we're measuring that as beginning uh, at the end of the First World War as being the American century. And Asimov yeah. being in the heart of of that as being this moment when, uh, you know, a, of course, Asimov hasn't seen it yet. Asimov is writing this before the interstate system yeah, that's exists, right. yeah, for example, of course. Um, and before air transportation is a real thing. He's actually living in the, the moment when those things are becoming possible. He's living in the moment when microfilm is new, when air travel is new. He is 10 years from the writing of this story, going to see the Eisenhower interstate system. Uh, 10 years after that, going to see air travel be just like a regular a regular thing. And and so he's, he's living at a time when there is... It has been, and then especially is about to be when the war is over, of course, this huge expansion of American material life and, and also for, for much of the world as well, the material culture, the material comforts of of our civilization that, yeah, for us now, I feel like when, yeah, when we look around looking at like our crumbling infrastructure, uh, we haven't invented a new mode of transportation in, yeah. uh, you know, a century. Like we were promised yeah. jetpacks, right? Where yeah. are the jetpacks? They're yeah, not coming. The or the hover cars. They're not, they're not coming, right? That, that we're actually living in a world that was largely designed and built between like 1870 and 1970. And maybe we're not doing the best job of maintaining it, in fact. Yet, while at the same time also doing cool things like launching the digital revolution, uh, figuring out like, quantum mechanics, uh, sending things to Mars, sending yeah, people to the moon, say, sending robots, landing something on Mars, yeah. which we just did this past Thursday, which is so exciting that we are actually still doing all this cool stuff. And so, as you say, it's it's where our like infrastructure is crumbling, is stagnating, is not an intellectual problem yeah. at all. It's a political problem. And, and to translate this into something that's really more even the purview of science fiction and that Asimov himself cared about a lot in his, uh, his, his, his later works in the 19th 1970s, climate change, we can solve climate change. We, we know how to do it, right? That's not where the problem is, right? I, I, I've had this discussion, I think, with, with uh, your significant other uh, at some point where, you know, it's interesting to realize that on some level, 
climate change is no longer a scientific problem. It's like a policy problem. Right. And then you can push it even further than that. It's almost not a policy problem because probably the policy is pretty clear, too. It's almost a sort of problem that sits at the intersection of culture and politics at this stage. Like if people voted for it, we'd get it done more or less. Um, But people have been told not to vote for it. So, yeah, it's a tricky issue. And, you know, I wonder, you know, your point about Asimov and all the stuff that's on the horizon for him is is great, because I, I wonder if in some ways when you have this sense of of innovation and what it can accomplish, right? All these things that are coming down the pipeline. I wonder if it then becomes very easy to blame decay on lack of innovation in some ways, right? If it's, if you're living at a moment where innovation really seems to be being pushed, where, where you have all this great new infrastructure and all these things coming forward, um, you, you want to talk about how all of this is the re- result of like a curious spirit, uh, a progressive attitude and all these sorts of things. And if in that scenario where you want to praise yourself for all the things that you're accomplishing, if it then becomes very easy to um, take the flip side, which is and if this doesn't happen, if we go the other direction, it must also be because of sort of cultural failures and intellectual failures. Yeah, interestingly, one of the things, you know, we had this big list that we went through for like five hours in the last episode yeah. of, of things that, that you know, are leading to the end, the decline, the stagnation decline, and then fall of the Galactic Empire. And one of them was actually this, this you know, was this entrenched bureaucracy. Um, and you know, we talked about what it means to to have a bureaucracy. That was actually, I think, the one thing on the list that that really struck us as being kind of an outlier and being kind of strange because we think of the bureaucracy as being a sign of like high sophistication and specialization yeah. of labor, the need to manage things. But what's what was not on that list was f- political factionalism. Uh, and, and, and simple and like roadblocks to getting anything done, like bureaucratic roadblocks. Right. But that maybe is actually what he meant when he was yeah, invoking the bureaucracy be. is just that, yeah. that, that sure, maybe we know how to do all sorts of things. Like maybe we do know how to solve climate change. Let's just stick with that. But to actually implement any of that plans is just impossible because of the, the nature of the institutions and maybe the nature of political culture in the empire. And and so maybe that's even what Asimov is pointing to as well when he's saying actually that the emperors really have no power. They're kids and they live in their palace complex and that's it. And that it's it's these aristocratic factions that are running the government now for their own for their own benefit. And that part of what they're actually really interested in, of course, is a a competition with each other that's about prestige and so on and not really about solving problems. Asimov doesn't spell any of that out, but that would actually also be a fairly apt description of what American politics have been like since the 1990s as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want to move back. This will be the, I don't know, second to last thing, I guess, that we'll do on this episode. I want to move back to thinking about the fall of Rome and the end of civilization, because, you know, as I said earlier, Asimov is obviously and clearly making a link here between the galactic empire is breaking up and therefore the material civilization, material culture is coming to an end. And this is something that we do with the fall of Rome as well. And as as we've not pointed out in this episode, but did in the, the prior episode, uh, 
Asimov was highly influenced by having just read Edward Gibbons, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, where this is taken for granted as well, where civilization, and, and by the way, what I mean by civilization here, or what you know, Asimov, I think, means here, right? He was really, uh, what he means is a sophisticated material culture, like a surplus of food that allows for high specialization of labor, uh, where you know people can make a living as, let's say, storytellers, you know, someone writing science fiction books, right? Rather than as subsistence farmers. And yeah, Gibbon makes this same link between the fall of the Roman Empire and then the material civilization of the Middle Ages. It's almost taken for granted in Gibbon and many, many other scholars, right? And we we think of the ancient Mediterranean, like Greece and Rome, right, as having public baths and aqueducts and you know running water right plumbing uh, heated floors massive buildings professional sports right like the the circus maximus uh 150,000 people the colosseum seats 65,000 people uh, ancient rome ancient greece is having this high literacy rate having doctors and surgeons and then when we're talking about rome in particular even a standing army with like retirement benefits, right? That That is a world that is sophisticated and that seems familiar to us. It seems like our world. But then in our, our sort of public, our common imagination of the Middle Ages, uh, we think of the Middle Ages as dirty. We think of the Middle Ages as ignorant. Uh, public baths, running water, they're gone. Doctors and surgeons, gone. People are, are gross and dirty and sickly, right? The, the sports arenas, they've been turned into places for wooden houses. The only big stone buildings are churches. And even that happens only 500 years after the fall of Rome itself, yeah. when we get Romanesque and then Gothic architecture. And medieval society is, you know, in our popular conception of this, is organized such that you can either be an aristocratic warrior, you can be some kind of cleric, it's a, a priest or a monk, or an agricultural worker, and that's it. And as, as you talked about earlier, Jay, right, we're talking about 1% maybe of people are monks yeah. and priests, right? So most people are these agricultural workers, which is not something generally that most people today would aspire to be or think of as a job they would like to have. And, and look, these pictures here, they're not especially accurate. Uh, this view of the Middle Ages is really off the mark, but even that depiction of like what life is like through, for everyone in the Roman Empire is not really very accurate either. Yeah, But I do think that it's fair to say that in the year 800, people living in the city of Rome would not have been able to build the Colosseum. They would not have been able to build the Circus Maximus. There weren't very many doctors. People did mostly use wooden bowls uh, instead of ceramic ones, for example. And there is a question of why. Why did the complex and sophisticated material civilization of the ancient Mediterranean world disappear. And it is very easy to assume a causal link between the end of the Roman Empire and the end of the ancient world or the end of ancient civilization, this this particular material culture. It's very easy to assume that causal link, but it's actually much harder to explain why, right? When you're pressed on what's yeah. the mechanism, that's hard to do, right? Why does the appearance of several independent states in Western Europe and North Africa, where there used to be just one, why does that mean that pottery and sports and plumbing disappear, right? And and I, I posed a question like this earlier, Jay, but I'll yeah. do it again. Where it's like, do we think that we would actually lose those things if the United States split up into, you know, 50 independent countries, I think the answer has to do with how well the economic lines of transmission of trade and things like this continued to exist after this breakup. Right. 
if somehow there's some massive disruption of material transfer uh, of oil pipelines, of shipping routes, um, right? If we imagine right now, if a truck driver had to stop and pass customs 25 times while getting something from Boston to Chicago. uh, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You might see some slowdown of economic growth at that point. Uh, that You know, that's probably not the most ideal situation to have. Right. And and especially, you know, if you're stopping, you, right, I think is the sort of picture that you're pitching there. Yeah. Is, you know, truck driver has to stop and be inspected. That takes time. Time is money. What also if there's between state to state, there's a, a fee, you know, some kind of tariff. Yeah. Um, also, who, you know, the road network, I just talked about the Eisenhower interstate system that requires it all being one country. So if it's not yeah. one country anymore, that disappears. Right. So there's some real material stuff and economic stuff, trade stuff that would happen there or could happen. Right. If in our world, if that did. And that is and yeah, that is great to think about, because that, that is, I think, where well, I think I know that is one of the ways that scholars now are thinking about what actually happens when the Roman Empire disappears. But that is not really the way that Gibbon is thinking about it. And it's does no. not seem to be the way Asimov is either. Right. Because Gibbon Gibbon is thinking a lot about the the church right blaming this on the christian yeah. church as a cultural thing right that the church monopolizes learning and it's not interested in doctors also not interested in in plumbing and that clearly is what asimov is drawing on here yeah as well I think but that's true but i think just to you know for our listeners to kind of run through because you know we did promise we were going to talk about the name Louis Perrin, yeah. <laughs> this, this chair say, of the right? board of trustees. Yeah. So we need to do that here. So, you know, in the 20th century, I mean, before that, but we'll just talk about the 20th century here and in our century, but scholars have questioned the causal link between the fall of Rome and the end of the ancient world. That's largely been taken just for granted because in the 19th century and the 18th century, we did tend to just privilege political narratives and and military narratives and assume that those types of stories matter in, uh, for for everything else that there's this kind of trickle down effect that uh, you know if there's regime change if an empire falls then that must mean bad stuff for everyone who was living there but when we actually start to try to look at that that's a little more complicated and this journey well, it maybe doesn't necessarily begin but we'll we'll start it here with uh, a scholar a belgian historian who lived in the first third of the 20th century i mean he lived for longer than that that's when he was publishing that we'll say uh, and this is a guy named Henri Perrin and i do not think it is an accident that Perrin is invoked here uh, it can't be it, it cannot can't be, be right? cannot be yeah. asimov must have known Perrin. Uh, absolutely Perrin did a lot of really cool stuff. He was a great historian, probably actually is, well, definitely is most famous for what is actually probably his worst scholarship, uh, which the is thesis. the Perrin thesis that uh, it was published in, in a book called Muhammad and Charlemagne. Actually, it was an article first, then published as a, as a book in the 1930s. So potentially this is something Asimov read in his like undergraduate history class at Columbia, like as like hot off the press, as fresh thing as professor was excited about or something like that. But the Perrin thesis was asking the question of, yeah, okay. So the Roman Empire disintegrated. It, it doesn't exist in the year 500 in Western Europe and the Western Mediterranean anymore. But so what? In what way did that actually affect people living their lives? And he says, well, it didn't. Like not the much material, at all. not much. Yeah. The material civilization is still largely intact. People are still living the way that they are. And 
one of the ways that he goes about doing this, and this actually maybe even goes back to uh, to Lord Dorwin, because Peren is actually really interested in material objects. In uh, do people have paper? which has to be imported from Egypt? Do they have gold, which has to be imported from the East as well? Uh, do they have spices? There's other things that he's looking at. Things that are material objects, material objects, generally the purview of archaeologists, right? You dig it up, you dig up a site and say, wow, look how much gold is here. Look how much you know paper is, is here if it's you know survived. But Peren is not doing that. Peren's actually looking for mentions of these things like yeah, casually yeah, in written exactly. sources. And what he says is, look, people are still talking about paper. They're still talking about gold and, and other things uh, long after the fall of Rome, decades, centuries afterwards. And so obviously the fall of Rome did not interrupt the ability to get these types of products. Therefore, the fall of Rome didn't have any real significant effect on how people were living their lives. Uh, the thing is, though, that when when uh, you know you know uh, someone who was not Lord Dorwin actually went out and did the field work, uh, turns out the archaeology really shows that while yes there was still trade, it was vastly less in the year six hundred than it was in the year one hundred. I mean, like vastly less. Yeah, I mean, it, it, Peren's thesis, you know, which I, I think now most scholars recognize as somehow flawed, um, nonetheless, um, is, a, is a provocative idea. And, and like the fact that we're talking about it shows the kind of lasting value that it has, even as the point to start to from which to begin to rethink the issues involved in the collapse of the the Western Roman Empire and stuff like this. And the way he put emphasis on economic material continuity across political change and suggested that somehow that level of continuity is more fundamental to thinking about social change than to thinking about state borders and stuff like this. I mean, I mean, this is really quite a, 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 a valuable contribution to think about in, in terms of thinking about what we mean when we use words like collapse, like decline, like crisis and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. For 50 years, really. Uh, per the parenthesis dominated this conversation. Right? Yeah. It was either you agree with the parenthesis or you don't. And he, this was a gauntlet thrown down. It was a challenge. Prove yeah. me wrong, right? Uh, it was a challenge to say, go find evidence that that shows that this is not true. And and let's, yeah, let's look at material culture. Let's look at things that are not the political and military narrative because the political and military narrative is telling us how things sucked for a handful of politicians, who yeah. lost lost their power, but it does not tell us whether or not this affected our people having enough to eat. Our people do people have plumbing? Do people have nice houses and and so on? Right, which are the things that actually matter to us as real people, yeah. as humans, right? To all of us, that's what really matters. And so to push the the conversation in that direction, even though he turned out not to be right, uh, still was super important. And Peren Peren would definitely was right just to say that that that's what we should be looking at. And then there's a in the later in the 20th century, and in fact, someone who actually writes a really great review of of the Peren thesis. Uh, is the really great scholar uh, Peter Brown, who was active from the, the 1960s until now. He's still publishing. Uh, he retired in 2011. I actually took his last graduate seminar at Princeton, which oh. was, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, one of the the really just the most amazing experiences yeah. of of my life. And Peter Brown really championed this uh, idea of late antiquity, and this gets started really in a book called The World of Late Antiquity that was published in 1971. 
And the idea of late antiquity is to break up the the idea of of the periodization that says there's the ancient world uh, on the last day of 499, and then there's the medieval world on the first day of 500. And you know those two things shouldn't have anything to do with each other. They say that actually no, there's strong continuities across that you know that that calendrical uh, marker there. And that we can see maybe a period uh, that we might define as being 200 to 700 or 200 to 800 as being late antiquity, even though, you know, that's one foot in the ancient world and one foot in the medieval world. And this, uh, and one of the, and, and, and of course, what he's doing there and looking at continuities is obviously not looking at political and military continuities. He's shifting the focus away from politics and armies, also from economics as well, uh, but shifting that to cultural history and showing great continuity in life before and after the fall of Rome, like culture, art, literature, religion, right? All these really strong continuities. And also, of course, expands the sort of scope that historians are, are might have been accustomed to talking about when thinking about the fall of the Western Roman Empire to include a vast Mediterranean world uh, across, you know, stretches that people are not always, you know, that people didn't always immediately have in their mind when thinking about the end of Rome, which, you know, is Italy, France, Spain, those kinds of areas. Right, exactly. I mean, this idea that the the fall of Rome, uh, I mean, even just calling it that is not right. The Roman Empire continues until 1453. It's headquartered in Constantinople, exactly. right? which to be fair, Gibbon does. Only the first of the three like volumes of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire is actually about the thing we've been talking about. The other two volumes are about the Middle Ages. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah, yeah, he actually exactly. does take it all the way. And we have been a little maybe disparaging of Gibbon here. And then we just both kind of gushed and oohed and odd when I said Peter Brown. Yeah. I do. So I do want to say that one that, that Peter Brown did did one time tell me uh, that, you know, if I really want to l- look at a historian, a really gifted historian at work, that what I ought to do is just go through the decline and fall of the Roman Empire and only read Gibbon's footnotes. Because Gibbon oh, was someone who was having wow. to work before like printed editions. He was working just from manuscripts and so on. And he was, I mean, he was a great, great scholar, even if we don't share his worldview and the, the the sort of approach that he took to answering his questions that he was a That's brilliant scholar and also a you know beautiful writer it's great yeah. it's a great book that everyone everyone should read but uh, I'll, I'll keep us going here through kind of the way that we have thought about what actually it means for regular people for the roman empire the western roman empire to be clear to disintegrate because the pendulum well, maybe I'll say this first is that the, the late antiquity model and, and the focus on culture, for example, there's this dominated historians of the later Roman Empire and also the early Middle Ages for about 30 years, really yeah. two scholarly generations and, and particularly in America, we should we should say and, and, and German speak the German speaking world, Germany and and Austria. But that pendulum swung back the other way in the early 2000s, and especially did so in the UK. Uh, There were three books in the early 2000s that were super important. I'm actually going to talk about just two of them. One was written by Brian Ward Perkins at Oxford, who was an archaeologist by training. Uh, So someone like equipped to really, you know, go test out the the Peren thesis. But he wrote this really provocative, short little book, highly accessible book called The Fall of Rome and the End of Civilization, uh, published in 2005, where he said, hey, look, yeah, there is 
definitely a you know collapse of material civilization that happens in the early Middle Ages, and it really is the result of the end of the Roman Empire, or at least intersects with it. Because what he is saying yeah. is that war is the culprit; that there really is, even though there are all these strong cultural continuities, there's a lot of violence. There is actual war. There is a military narrative happening in the fifth century and the sixth century. And it's bad for people that it interrupts trade. Uh, and so that makes it harder to get stuff. Uh, but I think actually one of the things that he says that's, I think, perhaps most useful of the things that he argues here is that he says that war causes people to leave. It causes yeah. flight. So if you live in Britain, if you live in North Africa, if you live in Gaul, if you live in Spain, then and you and you have the material resources, the financial resources to leave, to go to Italy. Uh, and then later when that collapses, to go to Constantinople, like Cassiodorus, we talked about him earlier, yeah, like yeah. Cassiodorus did, you're, what you are losing is your expertise. You lose your experts, uh, that that you're losing wealthy, educated people. And that is something that's that's not just sort of a hypothesis. That's actually something that we can bear out in the evidence that we've got. Um, I mentioned earlier, we were talking about the letters that we have between the Burgundian King Gundabad and the emperor in Constantinople, where they're talking about uh, getting uh, titles and medals for Gundabad's son, so that when yep. Gundabad dies, his son can simply step into that role. He's going to step into the role of general of the army, but he needs to step into the role of like the civil authority as well, and they need to get him that stuff from the emperor. And we have that from this bishop of Vienne named Avidus. We also have lots of letters, well, not lots. We have a handful of letters from Avidus looking around for good doctors and other types of specialized people, and he can't find them in the Burgundian realm anymore. And he has to write to, pe write to people in Italy to get an eye doctor to come to come see them. It's it's a fascinating study. Um, I don't I, I don't know the uh, the scholarly reception around it well enough. This is much more your field than my field. But I but I but I did read it, um, and I I found it a provocative a provocative argument, and and I liked the way which focused on not just material collapse, but thinking about the ramifications of what this would happen. Right? Um, you know, this is not to put to hit things too on the nose right now, but there's been all these thought pieces right now um, about how, you know, my place of residence, New York City, is going to witness this mass exodus right now um, because of the pandemic, because everything is closed, because all the good things about living in New York um, are not here right now. And thus, <laughs> the, the wealthy class that has dominated New York City for so long is now going to flee for um, expensive houses in the suburbs and so forth. And it's going to leave New York this kind of economic backwater for a while. I have no idea whether this will be true. I right, suspect, right. you know, the, the, <laughs> you know, the lament for the end of New York City has been written many times and has not been true yet. But certainly people are talking about this kind of phenomenon right now. Right. And I'm, I'm skeptical of that in this case, because we're talking about two years, maybe at the most exactly. before life returns to, to normal. Uh, Ward Perkins is talking about, you know, the fall of Rome as a process that takes over a century. And so, yeah. you know, this happens. It's it, you know, when your house is burned, burned down once because of a siege, you rebuild yeah. when it happens again, <laughs> it yeah. seems like it might happen again. That's when you pick up and move, right? When you hear that, that, that there's another army on the way, that's when you just say, you know what, forget it. Let's move to Milan. Um, and then if Milan is bad but look we can we can move to athens <laughs> and if athens yeah, is bad exactly. we can move to constantinople yeah. but i think that 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 ward birkins is really great really right in pointing out that that's really i think the brilliant thing that he he has there um there it, the book was provocative 
uh, was intentionally provocative and the reception was, you know, a lot of pushback and rightfully so. Uh, as an archaeologist, Ward Perkins does show a lot of uh, of things that disprove the parenthesis, for example, of, um, about the, the bulk of trade, about manufacturing and so on that show pretty steady decline, say between uh, 400 and 600, 400 and 700. But there also were some things that Ward Perkins did not show, such as that the archaeology, since the parenthesis, has actually borne out that the material output of the ancient Mediterranean world actually declines more between the year 100 and 300 than it does between 300 and 700 by a lot, actually. So if we want to talk about the end of the ancient world as a, from a material civilization standpoint, that's maybe when it is, actually. Yeah, there's a real sharp drop. I'm going to bring that back up in just a minute, but I want to talk about the other book that came out in the early 2000s uh, or in, in the decade of the 2000s uh, by another scholar at Oxford, a historian. This uh, is Chris Wickham. This is the book Framing the Early Middle Ages. And this is actually where we're going to go back to you thinking about that truck driver, Jay, because right, uh, Chris yeah. Wickham is what we call a historical materialist, meaning that he thinks that how people get food, what their material lives are like, the systems that create that are really what define us and shape our worlds. And so, and so when he's looking at what happens when the Roman Empire disintegrates, he's really thinking about it uh, in in those types of terms and in that uh, uh, and as an economic system and a, a system of material goods, a system of material culture. And his argument is that the Roman Empire, the Roman imperial government was the central driver of the economy. It was the central driver of production. It was the reason that transportation networks existed at all roads, for example, but also river transportation. Uh, it is the reason why there was mass production of pottery and clothing, and it is the reason there was mass production of food. That and, and all of that was about the army, that it was about getting stuff from the center to the periphery, like actual just stuff, food, pottery, clothing, armor, weapons, horses, all that type of stuff to the periphery to feed the army, and that there were all of these sort of knock-on industries as a result of that. And that the disappearance of that state, the disappearance of the tax system that supports all of that means that civilization in this idea of sophistication and specialization of labor, all of that disappears. Uh, for him, this happens more gradually than than for Ward Perkins, where he sees this as, as happening largely in the fifth century. Uh, Chris Wickham sees this as being dragged out a little bit longer and, and, and actually as where it kind of can line up with the parenthesis, where what Peren was seen in the written documents was that the, the slow death of this, of this uh, way of life. So that's really, I think, right where we could be thinking about your your truck driver, for example, is the multiple states and then the, the just sort of, uh, you know, if the federal government isn't there anymore, for example, right, the interstate system potentially would go away. And and this is a point where, although the arguments are fundamentally very different, there is a conceptual similarity, I think, between Wickham and Perrin, um, because l lest any... You know, reader, lest any listeners here think that Perrin didn't think there was a Middle Ages, that there was just right. continuity <laughs> of the ancient world. He did actually periodize it, um, but suggested that the Middle Ages really didn't begin until around 800 or so, and that the fundamental cause of it was the rise of Islam in the right. East, which destroyed or disrupted, I guess, all of the trade networks that had sustained material life in the West. 
Um, and this, so again, I, I emphasize Perrin's argument and Wickham's argument are not the same argument at all, but both of them are interested in how stuff moved around and how the disruption of those routes by which stuff moved had really extensive material economic effects on the Roman world. And they do point to the the real low point of this as being roughly around the same time. They're, they're certainly closer to each other yeah. than either of them is to Ward Perkins or or Edward Gibbon, uh, for that matter. But the mechanism is different, right? Yeah, for Perenne, it's, it's the creation of a new state in the East that perhaps for some reason is not going to trade with the West, uh, where for Wickham, it's the collapse of an economy that we would describe as Keynesian. Uh, having, you yeah. know, Milton Keynes, we talked about him in the, the last episode, uh, being you know, wrapped up when we were, we were thinking about the New Deal that, that Asimov had lived through, that that's, that's how Wickham is envisioning the Roman Empire as government expenditure driving the economy. When that central government, that big government is gone, then you lose the economy and you lose this great material civilization. That's, that's yeah. the argument in a nutshell. He takes takes 1100 pages to say that, but uh, yeah, that's, that's the right. argument in a nutshell. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, there's one more thing I want to talk about here before we move on to the next segment, and that is to look at another angle that we're thinking about now when we're thinking about the the end of, of, of ancient civilization and, and where that intersects with the fall of Rome. And that is thinking about the, the loss of sophisticated material culture due to the loss of people. Uh, which is something that seems to be a little bit hinted at here for the Galactic Empire as well. And that's to be thinking about disease and climate change, to see a, a series of demographic shocks in the ancient world, in, in late antiquity, essentially, that simply means there are less people in the year 600 than there were in the year 100. Uh, there are three big moments that will get pointed to. One of them is the Antonine Plague of the, the 160s. Uh, another is the Cyprianic Plague of the, the 250s. And then there's the Justinianic plague of the 540s that is generally considered to be fairly large and to have been really the, the nail in the, the coffin. What's interesting about this is that we have uh, no census data, right, to talk about yeah. how many people were alive in the Roman Empire. And so if we're trying to figure that out, you know, there's some science to it, there's some method to it, but it is also kind of a lot of guesswork as well. But the narrative material that we have, people writing accounts of having lived through the Antonine Plague that suggests that lots of people were were dying. We also have uh, material evidence then that suggests that there were more graves during this period than there normally would be. We have ins funerary inscriptions and so on. That actually also kind of lines up, not kind of, it also actually definitely lines up with something we see about trade in the archaeological record. There's this decline that I mentioned that, that Brian Ward Perkins doesn't show us that in his charts. This this much bigger drop seems to coincide with the Antonine Plague. So there might be something to that, but it is very yeah. difficult because we don't have actual census data. We don't have hospital records to know how many people actually died, how devastating it actually was. There also is in this time something we can show, which is an increase in malaria. And we also now can show that there were changes in the, the climate. It was getting colder and wetter in the Western Mediterranean and in Northwestern Europe, and that this resulted in less food, and in particular in food that is less nutritious. We can actually see in bioarchaeology that grain is less nutritious, that cows aren't getting as big uh, during this time. And so raising a cow is only yielding about 80% of the amount of food in the year 450 that it would have in the year 150. 
for example. Uh, and, and that's really cool stuff to really cool stuff to see. Uh, the two scholars who I think are really big on this are Michael McCormick, who's at Harvard, and then uh, Kyle Harper, who was not Michael McCormick's student, but did do his PhD at Harvard. McCormick was on his dissertation committee. Uh, Kyle Harper's book, which is, is highly accessible, it's an inexpensive book from Princeton University Press, which is called The Fate of Rome, uh, is pushing this reading of it, where he's, he's saying, look, let's, let's use this new information that we have about climate and disease and see how that might map onto the story of late antiquity and the story of the fall of Rome. And that's pretty exciting because we are thinking about things right now, like yeah. climate change and disease. It's like all we're thinking about right now as a, as a society. And so that's really cool. It's a very fun book. I highly recommend it. But there has been pushback on this, especially about how catastrophic, how serious the Justinianic plague was. The question is, was it more like the Black Death of the 14th century, or was it more like the Sp Spanish flu of 1918 and 1919 in terms of its demographic, its social, and its economic impact? And in particular, I want to mention two scholars who are pushing back on this are Merle Eisenberg and Lee Mordecai. Uh, the three of us were all grad students together at Princeton, and Merle and Lee have a really great podcast about plagues in history uh, called Infectious Historians. I highly recommend that to people. But so this is is really sort of, I don't know, where we are now in thinking about what actually is the relationship between the disintegration of the Roman Empire and the collapse of this ancient material civilization. It's so interesting. As you were just talking, I was thinking to myself, and you know, to some extent, maybe I'm going to reveal the limits of my own literary credentials here, but I'm trying to think of an example of a sci-fi work about sort of, you know, that takes the collapse of empire motif and gives plague or disease a prominent role in it uh, about a galactic plague or anything like this. And I can I, I cannot think of one. There must be one, but I cannot think of one. Yes, there must be one, but I can't think of one either. And I'm the one with the uh, podcast network about science right. fiction literature. <laughs> maybe there isn't, though. I don't know. Well, yeah, if there's not, some someone should write that. Maybe, yeah. maybe we can get on that. But I think one of the reasons why definitely there aren't enough examples of this that we can think of one off the top of our heads is because when we want to write that story, we write that story about our own world. We don't write that yeah, about a fictional true. world. Right. And there are lots of examples of that. Yeah. Oh, tons. Absolutely. It's interesting that this has not been like you like the circumstances are perfect for it, right? In a sci-fi world, because you have discrete population centers across an entire galactic empire and so forth, right? This is this is exactly the scenario in which plagues happen, right? One one planet gets a plague that accidentally gets transmitted to another one, and then a hundred years later, you've got galaxy-wide plague of some sort. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I will say, Alistair Reynolds, uh, who's you know part of the new ah. space opera, he has some of this in his world, but it's not, it's not like the Black Death, right? It, yeah. it would be more like it's more like the Spanish flu than it is like the Black Death. Yeah, it's interesting. Sci-fi Black Death. I mean, this this story should be written right now, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what summers are for. No, actually, that's not what summers are for, is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if only said the two academics. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, this is why Asimov actually had to quit his professor job to write That's science right. fiction all time for science fiction full time because it turned out that you can't actually just write sci-fi novels over the summer you've, you've actually it's actually when you're supposed to be doing most of your real job the research yeah. and the, coming up with new classes and so on well let's uh 
let's check in on psychohistory. We'll try to keep this segment a little bit short, and then we'll uh, we'll close out with the history of the future again. So we do get this description of of Harry Seldon and psychohistory uh, on page fifty three of the the version that we're using, where he's described as a great psychologist, and and the passage is this: a great psychologist such as Seldon could unravel human emotions and human reactions sufficiently to be able to predict broadly the historical sweep of the future. And so here's psychohistory as as being psychology as something that is predicative of, of being able to predict human reactions because you know enough about human emotions at an individual level, I guess, that you can bro- predict broadly the historical sweep of the future. This is the claim. Absolutely. You know, you, you think... You know, one of the the conceits of this part is that it's when you begin to realize in part two that Selden's plan doesn't just involve the the encyclopedia, right? He has predicted the existence of Salvar Hardin. He's predicted the existence of Hardin's response to the threat of Anacreon, basically. Um, And Hardin himself begins here. This this passage you've read is in Salvar Hardin's mind. It's It's his internal monologue begins to sort of grasp the possibility here um, that the crisis that they were that they are in is part of the plan. Actually, it's not a deviation from the plan. Right. It, it is, in fact, the, the catalyst, right, that these crises yeah. are going to be these catalyst moments. They're the moments for decisive action. And if you make the right choice, then everything is going to go great. And if you make the wrong choice, then it's over. But of course, Selden has predicted what the choices are going to be to begin with, because he knows the psychology of the actors in, involved. And, you know, this there, there are a lot of things that are wrong with this. I mean, for one, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's to put it simply. Yeah, I and mean, we're going to try to keep this short. So we maybe won't critique this quite so much here. But, you know, this is something that that historians used to do a lot more than they do now, I will say, which is to assume that everyone is making the most rational choice all the time. And also that the things they're concerned about, the things they are prioritizing in making their choices are the things that we, a thousand years, 2000 years, a hundred years later, value uh, and are interested in, which is never actually true. And it's interesting if you go back and look at history as a discipline at the moment of its founding as an academic discipline um, and look at the methodologies that are employed for for the, you know, the great nationalist histories of of the era, um, that one of the founding assumptions of the field is that it's possible to discern people's motivations pretty easily. Right. If a document says I am giving this land for these people for for X reason or whatever. It was assumed that that document was an accurate reflection of their motivation um, and that it was possible to discern motivations and rationales with relative ease, in fact. Um, And you see something of this hinted here um, that that thinking about motivation and reasons for action is a, a relatively trivial matter for Selden to, to figure this out. What? Why are people going to do certain things? Well, X circumstances exist. They will act in this way. Right. And, and, and historians even would do this when they didn't have documents that yeah, actually laid true. claim. Yeah, good we point. just assumed that we could figure out people's motivations. We assumed that the result of action was the, the desired effect of action. Yeah, all exactly. the time. And then what we do is this sort of armchair quarterbacking. And, and 
you know, that's even still just thinking that people are are always acting to achieve their goals, which they're not. How many decisions on a daily basis do we make that are based on just like the needs of our bodies? Like I'm hungry, yeah. I'm thirsty, I have to go to the bathroom where like we send an email more quickly than we meant to. That's like Kurt or something like that. Or, yeah. for, you know, is, is it doesn't explain as well as it should have because like I wanted to get up and get more coffee or, or the baby was crying or something like that, right? Yeah. And we we just don't see those things in history. They're the real things that shape or the small things that go into shaping our our decisions, setting aside even just the very idea that we're we're just like machines that can be predicted. And not only machines that can be predicted, but that are machines essentially programmed by forces outside of our control. And something else that's missing here, too, is actually to think back to climate change and disease as uh, being contingencies that Harry Seldon could not possibly predict because they yeah. aren't about people. They're random effects in the environment. And and beyond the scope of sort of, you know, it's interesting, like, you know, as with the, the current pandemic, there's there's always going to be the virtue of hindsight and so forth. And yeah, it turns out that, you know, prior to the outbreak of, of COVID-19, um, there were epidemiologists um, who were talking about the dangers of a coronavirus outbreak that coronaviruses in particular might have been might be ripe candidates for a pandemic. Um, and so, you know, s saying something like that sort of so sounds like, oh, maybe we can valorize somebody like Selden, right? If it, it, we just need to listen and, and get all the information correct and stuff like this. But the problem is, of course, you know, there are tons of voices saying different things all like this. And, and how do you sort them all out? And, and, and how do you prioritize and stuff like this? The virtue of somebody like Harry Selden as a character from a storytelling device um, is that he has knowledge that verges on omniscience, which is the only way this conceit works whatsoever, right? No one ever challenges him in the, uh, in, in the novels, there's no competing authorities, um, right? There's not another professor like Selden, who's also an expert in psychohistory, who peer reviews Selden's work and says, yeah, well, you might have a few flaws in your theory here or anything <laughs> <Right>. like this. <laughs> yeah. Like what's the, uh, what's the process of getting these articles published in the academic journal, right? Yeah. Like yeah. how does that work? We don't really see that, though. We know he was publishing some things, though. I guess not this particular stuff was not being published in the, in the journals, but right. Yeah. There's no there's no challenge to this, at least not, you know, external. I do think that we're supposed Correct. to understand that, you know, there's this huge organization here. It's not just Selden. Selden does have a team of people who also know what the foundation is really going to be for, that is actually going to be the agent of of, yeah. of navigating these crisis moments with knowledge of the future that Selden is going to going to give them to explain sort of like what what might happen next, what what are what's going to be at stake and so on, all of which are things that we're going to see in the the next installments. And of course, one of the ironies of, of this part, too, is that we learn at the end um, that Selden has intentionally caused psychohistory as an intel as an academic discipline to go extinct on Terminus um, so that no one will be able to mess with his plan, basically, so that no one will be able to see the plan or uh, understand it in any ways, because it requires people simply to be swept up in it and to not see it for it to work in some ways. If you can see it, you might screw it up. 
Right. If you can see the map, you might take a different route and yeah. I don't want you to take a different route. So I'm taking the map, I'm locking it up and I'm, I'm going home with it. And I will, I will let you know what's up from time to time, uh, which is really kind of a jerk thing to do, I suppose. But yeah, Harry Seldon is here, not maybe as like scholar, not as scientist. He's a prophet. Correct. And yeah, this is going to be, this is going to turn into a religion. I mean, like literally we're going to see that in the next, in the next installments. And uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. we're, we're close to closing out this episode here. We're thinking about the next installments, but let's do one little uh, check in here with the, the history of the future. Just kind of lighthearted before we go. I've kind of given mine away already, which was like, Hey, where are the women? Right. Oh, right. Oh yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I've kind of given mine away too, I suppose. But uh, yeah, uh, go, go ahead with yours. Well, so yes, where are the women was the, the, is the big one. And they're just not here. There are no women doing anything. They're not in public life at all. I mean, think like women actually exist. We've talked about 900,000 babies in the last 50 years. So they're there, but they're not doing anything in public life. They are not the scientists. They're not the scholars. They're not in government or the politics uh, from anybody, not just in the foundation, not just on Terminus, but the representatives from Anacreon and from the Empire, both men. The representative from Anacreon, in fact, describes the foundation project as being unmanly. Yeah, uh, as that's being right. womanly, right? So, uh, you know, that's just not how we would do this now. I, I, I suppose actually we could find this out real easily by going and looking at who's going to be in the Foundation TV series. Yeah, but yeah. I, I expect that there's some regendering of the the roles. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that's true. Yeah, and and as it should be. Uh, another thing that that jumped out to me. This is sillier, and this I just mentioned because I had brought up the women all already. Is that um, they're smoking cigars? Harry Seldon has some <laughs> cigars, which well, that okay, yes, we don't vegan really do that cigars. as much, right? Exactly, but they're not vegan. They're vegan. vegan. Yeah. <laughs> it's from like the Star Vega, but I read Correct. that as vegan tobacco, I and know. I was like, what? What is? Yes, tobacco How are you is vegan. Vegan tobacco. Yeah. What's <laughs> what? what's this tobacco you make out of meat yeah. on other planets? So that. <laughs> That word just meant something different to me now than it did to, to Asimov. Yeah, <laughs> to both exactly. Of us. <laughs> well, I we've already uh, discussed this a little bit, but as you know, the the medieval historian who spends a lot of time in the archives, I have to harp on the microfilm issue here, <laughs> and not because um, microfilm, like we said, microfilm actually might be a good choice for trying to preserve records and stuff like this, but as somebody who in my grad school days would occasionally go to the Bibliothèque Nationale or even the Bibliothèque Royale in Brussels and ask to see a manuscript and be given a microfilm. I have to say, uh, for the renaissance of this society that Asimov has envisioned, nothing could be more detrimental to learning than forcing everyone to do it by reading from microfilms. <laughs> this more or less would guarantee the permanent collapse of education throughout the entire galaxy because <laughs> yeah. microfilms are a poor substitute for books from a tactile standpoint and from a experience of reading standpoint. Yes, it's just not fun to read them. I mean, it's pretty terrible experience. I mean, even just given that, like, yes, you've got to go into an archive and you can't bring a cup of coffee with you. You can't yeah. have a pen, you know, like all these sort of things that you might want in a sort of nice reading environment. Uh, music, you know, you're not choosing the lights and all of that. It can be uncomfortable. They can be very cold. They can, well, they're usually not too hot because they're quite climate controlled. All of those things can be uncomfortable. But yet then also having to read it on this machine, that's just it's like, that's the straw. The, the great epilogue, the, the, if, if we wanted to write a funny appendix 
to Asimov's series, it would be like, okay, civilization has collapsed and there's like, you know, 30 human survivors or something like that. And they set out in search of this mythical foundation place where they know all knowledge is stored. And these 30 survivors of the entire human race must find this place and restore everything. And they get there and they discover it's all on microfilm and they say, you know what? It's not worth it, guys. Because <laughs> I think that's actually what would happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I think that's yet another science fiction book that we should actually yeah. go, right? So, <laughs> exactly. uh, you know, let's go see if we can do that with the rest of our weekend. And uh, we'll close out this episode here. I'm Glenn McDorman. So Jay, thank you again for joining me on this uh, this project here. We're hitting close to three hours on these episodes. My so pleasure. Thank you for that. Yeah, this is what happens when you put the two of us together. And uh, if you, dear listener, if you want to hear Jay talk more specifically about his own research, you can check out my medieval history podcast called Agnes. I had Jay on as a, a guest a few years ago. We also do hope that you'll come talk with us about part two of Foundation at our forum on claytemplemedia.com or on our subreddit. Uh, you can also follow the network on Twitter. We're at Clay Temple Media. So we're going to be back in a day or two with part three, the mayors. Uh, I don't know if you want to have a drinking game about how many hours that episode is going to run. Mm, I salute you. (laughs) uh, Until then, uh, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. 